1: Today, everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everyone else. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce, and I got egg noodles and ketchup.
2: Hello and welcome once again to the Cinephiles, where I hope that we will be concluding our exploration of Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California.
3: Hey everyone, my name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, host, and voiceover artist in San Diego, California. And yes, we
2: better be finishing today. We've got so much yet to go in the season of Scorsese, for God's sakes. Well, it was funny. I was kind of thinking because Raging Bull is sort of thought of as, you know, his maybe his masterpiece and that that would take longer than Goodfellas. But the difference is Raging Bull's pace is slower and there's less going on in every single shot, whereas Goodfellas, there's so much going on in every single shot that there's just more to talk about and to deal with. Yeah. And right now, if you're ready to jump right back in, what we're going to deal with is some garlic, which apparently you could slice with a razor blade because that's what we're going to do in prison.
3: That's right, I love
1: it. In prison, dinner was always a big thing. We had a pasta course and then we had a meat or a fish. Paulie did the prep work. He was doing a year for contempt and he had this wonderful system for doing the garlic. He used a razor and he used to slice it so thin that it used to liquefy in the pan with just a little oil.
2: I don't know why this is one of the most memorable things in the movie, but it really is. <laughs> well, I wonder if this
3: is an homage to uh The Godfather because remember sure. there's that scene where Michael is being taught how to make spaghetti sauce and make the yeah. meatballs and and so and of course that's Scorsese's dad who's the guy putting the meat uh inside the big steel tub, not making the steaks. Um that's someone else, but so I wonder if this is a little bit of a homage because uh, one of the side joys of watching mobster movies is learning how Italian food
2: is made authentically. Like, so this is a fun little scene here. I will say though, that the one thing that is not authentic.
3: Yeah. You're the foodie. Tell me what's, what's true. Well, it's not it?
2: just for me. It's, it's also from listening to uh, the people who worked on the film slicing <laughs> the garlic with the razor blade is just something they made up for the movie. And, the, <laughs> and, and they got so many complaints like, uh, Nick Pelleggi, Scorsese, people would write to them and said, look, I sliced it with the razor blade and it never liquefied in the oil. And they're like, yeah, because that doesn't work. It doesn't actually happen. It's something they made up. Mm-hmm. And I just with the inefficiency of trying to use a razor like that would take yeah. you hours to do. Yeah. yeah, But it's so great. And just what and I agree with you, by the way, I remember, by the way, when we did Coppola. That he said, he, at some point he said, I think every movie I make should contain a recipe. So if the movie's yeah. terrible, at least you get something useful out of it. <laughs> and, and this does look, this looks like some great tomato sauce. We got, you know, we're cooking the meat with, as you said, Scorsese's father. Yeah. We're making the steaks. I love the moment where they ask, you know, how do you like your steaks? And he goes, red, medium red. He like oh, an aristocrat. You're an
3: aristocrat. <laughs> <laughs> great moments, man.
2: And you see all the all the lobsters are coming in, and they got yeah. the bourbon, they got bottles of wine. What did you think when you first saw that this was prison for them?
3: Well, I mean, it's a time capsule, right? So this was prison for them at that time. So yeah, this is still kind of that. How can I say this? This kind of is it nascent? Is that the word that is nascent? Like, I think is the nascent. Yeah. Sorry, the nascent um, time of the mafia and the mob. You know, it's still kind of in that nascent stage. So you know, it's seen as an accepted thing in the neighborhood, right? And so some of these cops and prison guards and whatever, they're part of those neighborhoods. So, you know, this idea of creating a separate section for the mob guys to be at I'm sure it served two purposes. One is like, they're not mixing with the other inmates and so there's less possibility of some shit going down. And the second part is you get taken care of and you leave them where they're at and really you kind of almost see their crimes as, different than crimes from people in society because they're doing it to each other as opposed to people doing it to innocent people necessarily. So this is where I look at the approach to it. So it's made to look like this is not a bad deal to go a year in prison if this is what essentially because essentially you're essentially being sent to a dorm house for a yeah. year uh to hang out with your buddies um and to eat the food and 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 do whatever.
2: So and clearly uh henry as we see is still running his drug businesses on the side by the way i don't know what your your dorm was like but there were no lobsters or steaks <laughs> in dorm. that was not what was served in really in berkeley
3: no lobster yeah. no, steak? no
2: no it's sad It was all just like you know tofu and wheat germ and you know no it wasn't it was dorm food it was it was mac and cheese and and hot dogs and you know those was dorm <laughs> food yeah, yeah. yeah um uh but uh I, as you mentioned Henry's dealing drugs or getting drugs while they're smuggling in all the food by bribing guards. He's smuggling in drugs. And it is very clear from the first moment we see it that he is hiding those drugs from Polly. Yes, yes. So this this movie that sets up this idea of honor and you did the right thing. You give Polly his tribute. We're, we're breaking that here. And we've broken it many times already. Yeah, And then we go to the waiting room and in comes Karen with the kids. Yeah, just the whole intro. Look, because if you watch in the background, if you pay attention,
3: she is <clears throat> cutting off all these other women who have been waiting to go. Oh, to I didn't in, notice right? that. And and so she gets preferential treatment, right? And also, also in, in a way you're looking at it, it's a it's um, you know a bunch of uh, uh, black women there who are waiting to get in, mm. and and I think Latino women as well who are waiting to get in. So, like, you see her getting a little bit of privilege here by uh, skipping the line. And then, of course, she immediately is confronted with the Janice Rossi stuff, which I think is a nice little twist here uh, because they both have a a great argument about the situation where you can kind of see both sides of it, even though you know Henry's doing some nefarious shit.
2: And the filmmaking and editing and the way they do this moment of – because, again, he's going to push that – he and Thomas Schoonmaker are going to push that editing pace. They spin the ledger for – and then it's like six quick cuts, like within a second mm-hmm. to reveal that Janice has visited Henry Hill on that list.
1: You wanted to visit you? Let her stay up all night crying and writing letters to the parole board. What am I doing here?
2: Where am I? I'm in jail. And I love that she's, yelling at him and screaming and crying as she's just pulling out the bread and the sausages oh. and all the stuff she's been smuggling in.
4: Let us sneak this stuff in for you every, me week. Me. <laughs> <laughs> look look every week. Look what you're doing! Look what you're doing! Stop it.
2: And she's making a scene, and now you can see that they're smuggling things in, and this is getting kind of bad. Yeah. Yeah. And,
3: you know, Henry's trying to say look, I can't control who comes to see me or, or, or whatever, and I don't know how much of that is true, but Watch that's the guard. That, who, no, it's not.
2: Come on. You, I mean, <laughs> he, I'm sure he, he, he can't he, control who comes to see him. That's, that's sure. true. But he probably could say, Janice, don't come to oh, see me. Sure. I'm sure. Yeah. Right. I'm sure
3: he was getting conjugal visits too. Yeah. Um, But the guard there being embarrassed by
2: the whole situation mm-hmm. because, you know, he's covering for Henry is, is another situation that we are monitoring that. Yeah. And the other thing we hear is that she's gone to all the people that they were so close yeah. to that were family for help. They're people that owe Henry money and she's getting nothing.
4: You know what he told me? He told me to take my kids down to the police station and get on welfare.
2: So all of the family and we stick together and all of that stuff, that's obviously not true. Because Henry says-
1: That's what happens when you go away. I've told you that we're on our own. Forget everybody else, forget Paulie. Hey, as long as he's on parole, he doesn't want anybody doing anything.
2: What's interesting about the scene that starts so angrily with his betrayal of having Janice come is that in a in a way this bring they come together in this scene because they're in this desperate situation together. You yeah, know? hundred percent.
1: We've got to help each other. We just got to listen. We got to be really, really careful while we do it.
2: And then she gives him a long look and says,
4: "I don't want to hear a word about her anymore, Henry." Never. Never.
2: Now, this is what she's been asking since she first found out about Janice. She's been fighting him. She pulled a gun on him. She did all this stuff. She went to Janice's, yelled at him. She's yelled at him here. None of that has worked. And in this moment, he says, never. Right. Do do you believe him in this moment? I do because we don't see her again. Yep. So, so you know, the movie leads us to believe
3: that he listened to her. I don't know if he did in real life or not, but certainly the movie leads us to believe that.
2: Well, I don't think he stopped sleeping with other people. But I think he did end the relationship Fair with Janice. Fair I mean, I know he didn't stop sleeping with other people because we're going to see him with Sandy later on. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, and then we have the text on the screen that it's four years later. He comes out of jail. Great smile. They hug. And and it it. really has the feeling of they survived. They went to the bottom. Yeah. And they survived that moment.
3: And now they're stronger. Yeah, her leaning on the car, I think, is a nice decision physically for the character, you know, because there's a confidence and a relaxed nature. She isn't running up into his arms like there's a, okay, we're good. We're going to figure this out. Right. And he comes out looking
2: kind of refreshed as well. So, yeah. And I love that they get home and there's little small talk about welcome home and blah, blah, blah. And he looks around the house and he says,
1: Karen, get packed. We're moving
3: out of here. (laughs) We got to move. Yeah, we got
2: to go. You know, it, it reminded me of a scene
3: from the Coneheads <laughs> when oh, Jesus when Beldar comes home, Jane Burton. Uh um, he's been working like triple shifts as a cab driver, and he's and he's like, We can't stay here, you and the baby. We we must get a bigger place. You know, it's just funny to see that kind of comparison. He walked in and, and immediately is already looking for a new place for them to live. And I thought that was kind of cool.
2: Again, folks, this is why you tune into the Cinephiles. We have a lot of movie podcast choices out there, but none of them, none of them, have ever made a Conan's Good Goodfellas comparison. That is why you're listening to the. That's why this is the finest film podcast in the world. That's <laughs>
3: so true. So
2: true. Uh, and, and we also hear that the reason they can afford to move to a new house is he's dealing drugs with the people in Pittsburgh.
1: You have to go see your parole officer tomorrow, Karen. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine.
2: And I just go back to people only get caught because they want to get caught. Right. (laughs) You know? Right. right. Everything's going to be fine. (laughs) The other thing that happens is he goes, who wants to go to Uncle Polly's? And they all yell, me, and have they been to Uncle Polly's in the last four years?
3: I don't think so. No, I don't think so either.
2: Karen has, but in real life, but I don't think the kids have, yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) A, that's a good point. But I also think, like, she might have, they weren't welcomed to the big parties yeah. at, during this time, you know? Right. And, which is where we are now. We're back with, you know, the big Italian party. And Polly takes Henry outside and without any preamble, just says, I don't want any more of that shit. And Henry, just like he did with the Billy Bats thing, is trying to like go, you know, who me? He goes,
1: What shit? What are you talking about? Just stay
2: away from the garbage. You know what I mean?
1: What Pauly? I'm not what talking mean? about what you did inside. You did what you had to do. I'm talking
3: about now.
2: So, did Polly always know that Henry was dealing drugs inside? Yes,
3: I, I mean how I mean this idea that we the way that Paulie's presented from the beginning of the movie, brother, it's a guy who is aware of everything, moves like an iceberg, um, and only has to move when he knows he needs to move. Right. So in this situation is when he's finally moving and telling Henry, whatever you did in there is you did in there, but now you're out here because uh, what you do out here can affect me.
2: So right. Knock that shit off. And this is again, we go into these ideas of, you know, I did the right. They did the right thing. They gave Polly his tribute. Yeah. And now that's not who Henry is anymore. No. You know, Henry knows that he's lying to Polly. Polly has officially, straight up, said, "Don't do it." And he goes, "Polly,
1: why would I want to get into that? I don't make a I'm jerk not. out of me. Just don't do it."
2: And of course, Henry is going to keep doing it. Yeah. And then, alt to the normal thing that he always, oh, who me?
3: Why would I? I would never.
2: You know, just yeah. bullshit. Yeah. Well, it, it's funny. We sort of talked about it. it's like you know, there's so much about status. There's so much about yeah. wealth and how you spend. You know, going out and spending wealth in the world is if Henry doesn't do that, he can't keep up with the status and the the, the lifestyle that he was introduced to by this group of people. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And then I always forget this that in the next moment, Polly warns Henry about Jimmy and about Tommy. Yeah. Why do you think Paulie chooses to warn Henry about them at this moment? Well, again,
3: what the movie does really powerfully is other Henry, right? And here's another moment where the other Henry, Paulie, who has been presented to us as this knowledgeable uh, sage on high running the mafia family, tells him, hey, be careful with these two guys. I know I put you in contact with these two right. guys. I know I made you guys a crew. But now be careful of these two guys. So it's two things. One, Henry gets seen by the audience as someone worth protecting by someone we've been led to believe is a respectful person. And then second, you have this, uh, you further Polly's paranoia and fear that Jimmy and um, Tommy are eventually going to sink that family because
2: they can't stop doing the things that they're doing. And he ends with going back to, the drugs and because someone else had went to jail because someone was selling drugs that they didn't know about. And he says,
1: you know that you're only out early cause I got you a job yeah. and I don't need this heat. Understand that? Uh-huh. And you see anybody fucking around with this shit. You're going to tell me, right?
2: Yeah. And he, even Polly gives him that little slap. Yeah. And, and I love Ray Liotta's reaction to it, you know, yeah. because he knows he's betraying Polly, He's betraying the code. He's putting himself at tremendous risk. Right. And he knows he's going to keep doing it.
3: Yeah, he is. And you juxtapose that slap with the slap he got, you know, after L- the Luf- Lufthansa mm. deal, you know, yeah. where they were pulling out the money or, or the other deal. Air France. Oh, sorry, the Air France. Right, sorry, I yeah, got the airlines mixed up. But, yeah, uh, you know, you see that that slap is a
2: slap of affection. This slap is a slap of warning. You know? Yes.
4: Yeah.
2: Um. And then what do we cut to? Whole lot of drugs that they're moving around. Um, we've got the Rolling Stones gimme shelter. Yeah. This is a song that uh, Scorsese has used multiple times in multiple movies.
3: Yes, he has. Yeah, Departed. Yeah. I started using
1: Sandy's place to mix the stuff. And even with Sandy snorting more than she mixed, I could see that this was a really good business. I made $12,000 in my second week.
2: I love the even with Sandy snorting more than she, <laughs> like that's just if you look at the way they're doing business here, do you feel confident in this setup? No, of course not. But. But it's a business, right? And
3: and like most businesses, you factor in that there's a little uh, money disappearing every month or whatever, like with overhead or you know whatever's going on, or maybe you just figure that that's part of the game, right? And so with him, he's factored it into the overall business that he's going to take some losses because she's snorting, but it's worth it because of the work she does to keep the business alive. You know, so you make those exchanges in that kind of a arrangement, shall we say? But um, and this is also a fascinating thing about because when you're watching it, like you have to understand, like mafia guys have to make their money, right? They're not, you know, going to a regular job and then on the side they're hustling people or beating people up or killing people. Like this is their life, and so when the cops are on them, when they're coming out of jail, they've got to figure out another way to do income. Oh, and also they have to kick up a certain amount to the guy above them. So. Paulie, in a way, is playing this game like you figure out another way to make money, but this is all Henry has. So what else can he go and do? So, you know, I'm not excusing Henry's behavior, obviously, but like in a way, this is a system that's forced to make you make these kinds of decisions so you can put food on the table, feed your family and and, uh,
2: pay for the roof over your head, you know? Well, but you don't necessarily have to go get a new roof. Like, it's, it's, it's <laughs> the output of the money, <laughs> which is where I have the problem. Or a white Christmas tree. I guess you're right, yeah. We, we, we were just talking off mic about uh, about a major purchase, and I went, I, I could afford it, but I don't need it. And, like, that's the big, It's and I know I brought it up, I think, in the first part of the Meyer Lansky Hyman Roth. I'm living in a small town and, you know, in a small house in a very, very mild way. Well, that's how you keep the money. If he wasn't going sure. to the COPA, if he wasn't buying a new house, having the affair, snorting yeah. half the cocaine rather than selling it, he'd be, he wouldn't have these financial problems and he fair wouldn't point. have to. More, that's yeah, a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, you got to invest your money very carefully. You got to yes. save your money. <laughs> that's, that's how I was raised. Um, it's a smart it's, way to be raised. More people should have been raised that way. I love the I love the the end. He says, "All I had to do was
1: every once in a while was tell Sandy that I loved her."
2: (laughs) So, not sleeping with Janice. Now, to be clear, does he love Sandy? Love, no. I I don't even think he. I don't even know if he likes Sandy. I think he has fun with Sandy. If that makes sense, you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah,
3: she's a she's a necessary evil for the things that he's doing.
2: Yeah. And then we see him with Jimmy and Tommy, and he says, "Within a couple of weeks, it got to
1: be so big." I needed some help. So I got Jimmy and Tommy to come in with me.
2: So it's like Polly said, Don't deal drugs and be careful of Jimmy and Tommy. Henry is dealing drugs and has brought in Jimmy and Tommy.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: And I love by the way that as they're discussing, they're having a meeting about the crimes that they're committing, that we that we hear Mr. Conway and we realize, Oh, they're at the probation office.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, by the way, the actual halfway house that Henry Hill and a bunch of these other guys was at was located right near Studio 54 and Saturday Night Live. <laughs> so they would regularly go from the halfway house into Studio 54 and do a lot of drugs. The, the other story I, I didn't tell in our last part is hmm. in when the Godfather came out, all these guys went to the Godfather together oh to go see it to of go course. see the movie yeah of and course. just and I just the idea that the characters that we know in Goodfellas all getting in a car driving to the city and going to see The Godfather, there's just something about that that I like. (laughs) Karen is giving a a tour of their new place to Maury and his wife, and it's such a perfect late 70s, early 80s, you know, with the wall that opens up and all the Chinese decor and all the kind of over-the-top stuff.
3: And the actress who plays... Maury's wife is, um, Erwin uh, Winkler's wife. Oh, really? She's the secretary in King of Comedy who is oh, keeping yeah. Hupkin at bay at the, you know, at the, uh, agency. I'm trying to look up her name. Sorry. Uh, but yeah, that is Erwin Ir- Winkler's wife, the producer Erwin Winkler's wife. Um, yeah. Margot Winkler. Here she is. Yeah. Who pal- plays bell. But, yeah, she was in a number of films. She was in After Hours. So Scorsese has used her a number of times in movies. So, yeah. Um, And she's totally good in
2: this. Oh, she's great you um, kidding? Yeah. yeah. You
1: and Jimmy talk. Yeah, I talked to him and he's looking into everything. Oh, oh this will make the Air France hole look like
2: goddamn peanuts, man. And as always, Maury is never <laughs> – Maury is not a calmly satisfied patient guy. He's <sighs> just oh, always going to push, always going to poke. And then we cut to our guys and we hear.
1: And these are the guys that Jimmy put together for what turned out to be the biggest heist
2: in American history. We see Tommy. We see Frankie Carbone. um, We see these other guys like Johnny Roast Beef. And then we see Samuel L. Jackson, who is Stax Edwards.
3: Yeah,
2: It's just so interesting with the movies that we covered of watching the arrival of Sam Jackson. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Late 80s to mid 90s, you know. Um, You know, so by the time you get to Pulp Fiction, it's like, a, you know, he's fully there. Um, it's kind of a leap. I mean, because what? Coming to America is 89.
3: And three years later, that'd be right. This is Goodfellas, 91, 92 Goodfellas. Yeah. So it's a little bit of a bigger park. He's got more lines. And then there's, there's Jurassic Park, which is
2: 91. Oh, right? 91. Jurassic Park is the thing. Right. Yeah, good point. Right, right, right. And then there's um, uh, Jungle Fever. Right. Which is it's right my- in this era, too, where he's yeah. in Jungle Fever. Yeah. Um, Crazy. He's a guy who'd been around, you know, you know, we were just talking in our short recently of these actors that have been around and paid their dues. Yeah. And then suddenly, you know, they're there. Only Maury was
1: driving us nuts. Just because he set this up, he felt he could bust Jimmy's balls for an advance on the
3: money we were going to steal.
2: We talked about this when we first met Maury. It's like the dude can't shut up.
3: No. Right? Yeah. He wants to be a part of it. Well, and because he's a guy that puts stuff together. That's the thing that's so confusing about Maury is Maury is the guy who puts stuff together in certain... If you research the guy they're basing this on, like he was part of a number of scandals, this guy, but he could figure out the angles but he couldn't shut up about it. So right. It's a confusing mixture um, uh, of of things in one person because this guy could have had a pretty cool relaxed, successful life off his crimes, but he couldn't shut up about it when things went down. And he was constantly needing the stroke, at least the way the movie presents him, constantly needing the stroke of recognition uh, and respect from these guys. And he hated that they kind of looked down on him, yet he still wanted to be part of the group. So it's a confusing thing with him.
2: You know, it, it, it's so funny. You asked me in the first part if I know a and then I just <laughs> suddenly flashed on, Oh, I hadn't even thought about that guy and that guy. <laughs> and just these people who like, cause I was thinking about the people that, you know, poked the bigger bear. Oh yeah. You know, that, you know, that kind of thing. But then what you just described, is was like the, per- I just need some acknowledgement and I feel insecure mm. around people that are more powerful and don't feel that I get acknowledgement that I deserve. And it's like, Oh, I know so many people like that. Um, cut to a very cute baby and a very, outfit because now in addition to all the other things we're doing uh, Henry is using his ex-babysitter Lois to smuggle drugs from Pittsburgh by taking babies back and forth on a plane that aren't hers <laughs> <laughs> we're back with Sandy who's doing more coke um, and they're arguing and we talk about it's
1: a mess it's like a pig pen. What do you think I got you the dishwasher for, huh? I hate doing the dishes. Fucking my nails. Oh, you hate doing the dishes? You gotta be smart. Look at all this powder
0: around
2: here. And this is a big part of why they got arrested because there was so much residue of drugs over everything because they just didn't clean stuff up. <laughs> and then we see him in the shower and we hear the radio report that Luf- the Lufthansa heist worked. And that- this is such a great scene with how Ray plays this, right? Yeah.
3: And to stage in the shower. And such a 70s shower with that turquoise tile and the clear shower curtain. But him banging on the wall from different angles, right? From the side, from below, uh, from above. I love that Scorsese felt that this moment was important to shoot in multiple angles and to include all those angles in the sequence. Because you're seeing the last moments of joy from Mm. Henry Hill. This scene here. Because after this, everything starts to fall apart, right? Slowly but surely, as the movie goes forward. But this moment is like the last moment of pure joy from Henry. Um, Because I know there's the Christmas and the tree and all that, but that's that's with Jimmy hanging over his head and um, him being upset about people spending money. But this was a, a final moment of unbridled joy from Henry. I, I
2: totally agree, and I think and what's interesting too is he's not directly involved in this heist. No. I mean, he's he's peripherally involved. Right. I think the only reason he lives is because he wasn't directly involved in this heist. Seems like yeah. yeah. Um, uh, by the way, it was uh five million dollars in cash. The proximate we don't really quite know, but an estimated five million dollars in cash and eight hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in jewelry, which in today's dollars is over t- worth over twenty eight million dollars. Wow, that's the size of this heist. Wow. And who we're back at the club. There's Christmas decorations everywhere. And I love, by the way, they do a perfect job aging De Niro. I love him when yeah. we see him here and he's got the gray in his hair yeah. and he just looks fantastic. And in comes Johnny roast beef. Who's this is one of these guys. Who's not an actor. This is someone who the score says he found who may or may not be a little bit mob guy. really. Oh, um, and, nice. and he comes in with his wife, <laughs> First, there's a reaction to his outfit, and then he opens up the door and says, Jimmy, come here. Isn't she gorgeous? And there is this pink Cadillac. Yeah. And yeah. the first thing he says is, I bought it for my wife. It's a coupe. I love that car. <laughs> <laughs> De Niro, De Niro is so amazing in the scene.
3: Listen, I have to go buy anything for a while. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but don't It's a wedding gift, Jimmy. It's for my mother. It's under her name. I just got mad.
2: And then Johnny Roast Beef says, what are you getting excited for, Jimmy? That line is not in the script. Oh, wow. Scorsese comes up to Johnny Roast Beef and, and gives him the line and says, yeah. I want you to say this to, to Bobby yeah. and to Bob De Niro. And because he knew, he knew that, that that particular sentence, what are you getting excited for, Jimmy, yeah. would set De Niro off. And it, what, where he goes from this point forward, and what's so great is Johnny Rose Beef not an actor, <laughs> yeah. so he's got one of the great actors of all time now going off script and going off on him.
3: Am well, I getting excited? You stupid! We got a million fucking bulls out there. Everybody's watching us, and you get a fucking caught. But it's telling me, me I'm excited. My mother's name.
2: And Then we go into, and I, I don't know who is the best at repeating the same sentence over and over again but De Niro is up there because I love the, what's the matter with you? What's the matter with you? I apologize. What's the matter with you? Sorry. What the fuck is the matter with you? It's so scary. Yeah. At a certain point. point. And he apologizes. Yeah. And then Frankie Garbone comes in, I think with this, with his wife in the giant mink coat. Oh, Frankie. And the look on his face, look at this guy when he sees
3: the mink coat and, it takes it, he, he essentially rips it off her. Yeah, uh, Jimmy does, and then uh, tells her you gotta get all this stuff out of here. Then
2: Frankie kind of yells at her to get on out of the door there, so yeah. And then Maury comes up to Henry because yeah, he's yeah. seen all these other guys spending money, and he's like, Where's my money? Oh. Other people are obviously getting money. Oh, I got fries on Richard
1: Frank coming to make Biggest biggest bundle. We uh, made in this right, talk for oh, it. My my I don't talk to him.
2: Henry's job is always to settle people down so, so they don't get killed, basically. <laughs> so, and then we go to a moment where I think that. Hold, hold on a second, uh, uh, Steve. I just want to correct something real quick. You were talking about uh, Johnny Beef.
3: Um That's the actor John Williams. He, is, he was an actor, uh, he was in oh. a number of voices. Yeah, in the 70s for the Scooby Doo movies and the series. And he was on the oh, Harley really? Motor series. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, some people might remember, like, after this movie comes out, the next year he's in Honeymoon in Vegas uh, and he plays Johnny Sandwich, not Johnny Roast Beef. Oh, that's so, hilarious. Uh, so, yeah. So, well, I don't know. I don't know if he was a, a mobster, like, maybe in between the acting gigs, because certainly there was some time, like, 20 years before he did something again in, in 1990 or 15 years. So maybe he was, you know. Uh, How can I say the supplementing his income in certain ways, but um, yeah, he did go on to act in a lot of stuff starting with this year, 1990 of Goodfellas and State of Grace that other uh, Irish, I think gangster film with Ed Harris. And then, you know, he's in the mask and a number of things over the years so yeah
2: but a good character actor for sure well well and this is why you know look this is why you have to trust you have to check your sources you know yeah yeah. this is why even though we work really hard to get everything right on the cinephiles i mess up sometimes and clearly maybe i had conflated two different stories as i'm doing all my research and Mm. put something in my head but this is you know this is how mistakes get made this is so i apologize for Getting that wrong, I still think the moment is fantastic. It I is. am certain. I am certain that Scorsese whispered that line to him, but apparently, I got wrong some of the stuff about his background. So, thank you so much for bringing that up. We always want our, to give you the, the correct information on this. Of setup. course,
3: our apologies
2: to Johnny Williams if he happens to be listening. Our yeah. So, I want to. I I don't know that I don't know the answer to this question at all. Okay. So, did Jimmy give money to Johnny Roast Beef and Frankie Carbone, and not give any money to Maury? Yes. So he was purposely fucking with Maury.
3: Yes, 100% because he's a ball buster. And I know how people like this work, right? Because A, he hates that Maury probably put this together. Um, So Jimmy put it all together in terms of like um, getting the crew together and pulling the heist off. But Maury is the one who figured out all the angles and presented it to uh, Jimmy and everyone else. So I bet there's a piece of Jimmy that's upset about that, right? Kind of like directors with producers sometimes clash because, like, who's really responsible for the end product? And so that's what I think is going on here. And the fact that Maury is constantly hammering him for the money, if he rewards him for the hammering, then in a way he's encouraging more of that behavior. So I think in some fucked up way, Jimmy's trying to teach Maury a lesson about how to deal with him and make him not be this kind of person that he is. So yeah, so yeah, I cuz he knows Carbone, he knows Johnny Roast beef like those are his boys, those are part of his crew, so he's going to take care of them. And he probably didn't even give them their full amount. He probably just gave them a little and he
2: didn't. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. We see later when everyone starts dying. But like he um but with Mori, he purposely withheld it to just fuck with him and teach him a lesson and in some messed up way have him try to respect him too. So
2: yeah, it's messed up. Well, it's funny because this this movie it's it's so kinetic and it propels you along, and you and yeah. you believe, and I kind of believed more of what I was being told. I think earlier, but watching mm-hmm. it this time, and in particular in reading the book, the Nick yeah. Pelleggi, Pelleggi book, is it's actually very clear. Like in my in my mind, it was sort of, oh, this guy got a Cadillac, and this guy yeah. they're not obeying the rules, and yeah. they're going to get Jimmy caught, and that's why they get killed. Right. right. But that is not the reality. The reality is Jimmy kills him because he wants the money.
3: Yes, exactly. Which uh, you know, Ray or Henry says later in the in the film,
0: yeah.
2: Yeah, it's just and and, and he's fucking with Maury because Maury pisses him off, you know. Yeah,
0: exactly. And then he's gonna kill him too. Henry goes back to Jimmy, and and
2: Jimmy is suddenly really warm and frim- friendly, and gives him grabs his face, gives him a kiss, and gives him some money, and also gives him a warning.
0: Oh, Frankie and Johnny, don't be a moral with the money. Do what's right. Understand? Yeah, of course.
2: Cut to him coming through the door with the white Christmas tree, <sighs> yeah. and then immediately handing some kind of jewelry, which I'm assuming is very expensive, and a big stack of money to Karen. Yeah. So how much is he spending? I mean, is he totally oh, violating what he just said to Jimmy? Yeah, I think he is. And this is <clears> – <throat> the thing is when you do the research on
3: the real people, right, the thing that you find out about Henry is that he was a bit of a fuck-up in the mob. So I think Jimmy doesn't go after Henry because he's spending on a Christmas tree, right? That's something you keep in your home as opposed to a car or a mink or these kinds of things. And I think he has more of a trust with Henry because of the years they've spent together working on stuff. So like, I think Henry knows where to push the boundaries with certain people, where to sneak stuff around with certain people. And I think with Jimmy, he knows that, you know, no one's going to be like, Oh my God, Henry Hill bought a massive white plastic Christmas tree. He must've been part of the Lufthansa heist or whatever. So uh, he knew, he knows exactly how to play this, but he's irresponsible as well, which is the trait that has been his
2: situation for quite some time now in the movie, you know? And I think also because he wasn't really as directly involved in the job. Yes, right. He didn't get that much money. So it's not, you know, so maybe he bought a piece of jewelry that's a few thousand bucks, but it's not a car. It's not a thing, you know.
1: Liftonza should have been our ultimate score. The heist of a
2: lifetime. Six million in cash. More than enough to go around. The way that that piece of voiceover is written, the should have been, is critical. Because it tells you this is not going to go well. No, and it's particularly not going to go well for s- stacks for Samuel Jackson because that's where we show up next. Ugh. And it's Tommy uh, and Frankie show up, and there's some small talk. And he was supposed to move some uh, vans, and he didn't mm-hmm. do it because he was with a girl. And he's and Tommy is kind of walking behind Sam Jackson, and then yeah. says,
1: "Supposed to be here, you know. We're supposed to be there by night. Oh. Yeah, yeah you're there. always fucking late and late fucking... for your own
2: fucking funeral." And just shockingly out of nowhere just shoots him in the back of the head it's super bloody yeah and then there's just this bit where frankie's got the coffee pot because there was jokes about him making coffee he's like i'm not making coffee he's like what the fuck you doing it's a joke (laughs) put the coffee down oh my god frankie and then they exit and then in just this completely bizarre moment we we've left we killed him And then we come, and then we're back again, and we see Tommy in slow motion stand over the body and fire. And what's really interesting, we already saw him do this, and he fired three shots in the body. And now we go back to the same moment, he's standing over the body, and he fires five shots. It's very clearly not the reality that we just saw. No. No. What is the purpose of this moment? I think it's
3: to kind of wake you up that we're about to enter into the end of this family and the uh, the viciousness of Tommy because we're leading to Tommy getting shot in the back of the head when he's going to get made right yeah so what you're showcasing and reminding people of is this is a bad guy just because you were enjoying Joe Pesci in the role you love the chemistry with De Niro and Ray Liotta Tommy is a bad guy and so I think the slow motion is to show you the ferocity And the evilness of this guy and the callousness that he has with human life. And so, because the way they frame him and the way you're seeing the gun cock back and the bullet come out and the the little bit of a flame get there, all of that is to show you um, how brutal Tommy actually is, you know, and you don't, and I think, and I'm glad they don't show the bullets going into Sam Jackson's body. That would have been overkill because you're trying to focus on Tommy, let the audience see how vicious this guy really is.
2: I, I, I always am lucky when I get to ask you the question before I have to answer it myself because <laughs> because you may help me think and clarify of what my thoughts are because I think you're absolutely right. And I think the, the thing about what it is for me yeah is what we saw when it happened in real time yeah. was what happened. What yes, we see yeah, when he I'm comes saying. back in yeah. slow motion yeah. is how Tommy sees himself. Right. Oh, you know what interesting. I mean? Oh, it gets a possibility, too. Yeah, like, I can see that. Because yeah. now he's the image of the of the emotionless killer, the cold-blooded killer, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, and it's and of course, it connects to what's the, the final shot of the movie when we get there. And it's funny, because in the voiceover, Henry kind of writes off stacks, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he kind of goes like, uh, you know, it was only a matter of time. Because it didn't get rid of the truck. He got high, fell asleep yeah. with his girlfriend. yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's with Jimmy, and he asks what happened to Stax.
3: Yeah.
2: Uh, and Jimmy just goes, don't worry about it. For the best. And, uh, yeah, and that also goes, like, don't ask me any more questions, I think. Right.
1: Everything is beautiful. There's nothing to worry about. Then you tell him?
0: I didn't tell him. What? Guess what? They're going to make them.
2: They're going to make Tommy a made man.
0: Yeah. You believe that? This little guinea bastard? You believe that? Huh? Huh? He's gonna get made? We're gonna work for this guy one day. He's gonna be a boy. <laughs>
2: and Jimmy's joy at Tommy being made is just palpable, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And right in the midst of this moment, who comes up to ruin it but Maury? Fucking Maury. And and Henry again is separating him from Jimmy because he knows if you keep poking Jimmy, you're gonna get killed. And he wants Maury wants his money, rightly so, I think. Yeah, I,
3: I like this sequence of scenes, this really compact sequence of scenes because, right, Maury comes in and Henry tries to hold him off, but Henry has finally hit his limit. Yeah, and I think this is important because mm. Maury, and then Henry goes, all right, fuck, fuck you. Go talk to him. Go talk to him. No, go die. I'm sick of protecting you from Jimmy. He opens the door. He, he slides the door open, goes, go, go talk to him. And of course, because Maury is a dog with, no, with uh, a lot of bark and no bite, Maury doesn't. And Maury stares at Henry and then it starts the singing and try the Danny boy thing that he's trying to do with Henry, yep. which is of course the default of these people who bark a lot, but don't bite
2: is they always, when they get called out, they always try to make a joke or make light of it. And it's like, mm. and then as he's doing this, the camera cuts to Jimmy. Hmm. We hear sunshine of your love cream. Yeah. Another great fucking song. Yeah. And the camera pushes in. It's it's just shot slightly over cranked. So it's shot at 32 frames a second. So it's it's not like super slow motion. It's just a little bit slower. Uh-huh. And here's what Scorsese said: He said, I just hoped that I would catch something, that De Niro would do so. I just I didn't give De Niro direction. I said, we're just yeah. gonna push in and you're gonna watch Maury and we're gonna see what happens. And there's something so magical in the look from De Niro as he smokes and the camera pushes in
3: yeah magical and scary
2: yeah oh yeah oh yeah terrifying
3: yeah the shot of De Niro as he's watching all this happen and looking more like it is a chilling shot of like I'm gonna kill all these motherfuckers and I have yep. to kill all these motherfuckers you know yep and we hear That's and Henry, I mean. too, by the way I think he's also considering Henry there's no way he isn't considering Henry as of well- course he is
2: Of course he is. I think Maury told his wife everything. Maury yeah.
1: That's when I knew Jimmy was going to whack Maury. That's how it happens. That's how fast it takes for a guy to get whacked.
3: So let me make it clear. So we understand each other, because we've all watched this movie who are listening to us. When people speak in coded language and coded words... It means certain things to people who are in their inner circle. So you can't default with to, well, he didn't specifically say it. No, that's not how it works. You're watching this movie. You're seeing what De Niro does and you or what Tom, or what uh, Jimmy is doing. You understand that Jimmy, through Ray Liotta's voiceover, Henry Hill's voiceover, that Jimmy's basically asking or saying that Maury's going to get whacked. That's how it works just so we're clear to anybody who's listening to us.
2: I just had this image of, of of someone who creates an entire, like a comedy where someone creates an entire mafia empire, not knowing that they were doing it because they were always just saying things like, <laughs> you know, this is a nice store. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. And they didn't mean anything by it, <laughs> but then they got a whole bunch of money and they're like, Oh, thank you for the money. And then people started saying things and, and, and they became like Polly and yeah, people right. it's like halfway between like being there where everyone thinks this person is a oh, brilliant guy but they're not yeah and that they, they create an entire mafia empire without knowing it um, johnny
3: take, take care of tommy take care of him man
2: yeah take care of him he's like i didn't mean kill him <laughs> like really take care of him Make i, sure say, you care I meant of him. go to a spa or something well uh copyright the cinephiles 2024 yeah there uh, you go just to protect <laughs> ourselves legally And then we're hanging out and talking and everybody's kind of laughing. And Tommy is telling stories. And it's funny because he's telling a story about, he's describing this beating and how he got angry and he attacked this person. And it really feels like he's actually telling the story about Billy Bats, you know what I mean? That's kind of what it sounds like. Um, And everyone's laughing and seems to be having a good time. And so Henry, who was certain that Maury was gonna get whacked is now confident that he's not.
1: It was like a load off my mind. Poor bastard. Never knew how close he'd come to getting killed. Even if I told him he would have never believed me. And of course, I don't
2: believe you. <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and they're walking down an alley with Maury, and we're gonna go to a diner, and we get into this car, and they're just talking, and then in mid moment, something happens with Maury's face, and then we cut back to Tommy behind him, pulling that, you know, shiv oh, yeah. out of the back of the of the neck. Yeah. Right below his skull, and we go. Oh, okay. They've killed Mori. Well, you never shut the fuck
3: up. Well, the the moment is interesting because he says to Henry, "Forget about this thing." Do you think that Jimmy knows Henry is going to like talk if Henry is there when they kill Maury? Do you think Henry is? Does he think, or is he trying to protect Henry to not be because? Uh, Maury is wearing the same outfit. So it is that night. Yeah. They just got rid of Henry so they could kill, um, Maury in their own way, him and Tommy and Frankie and, and, uh, Jimmy. So I wonder if maybe this was either him protecting Henry or, or maybe not wanting to have any kind of problems where Henry would be, where, where Henry might talk if they killed Maury because they have such a strong connection. Cause we're going to about to see Maury's wife knocks on their home late at night because Maury hasn't come
2: home. So yeah. I think this is a great question. And it kind of is leading my brain in a whole other direction of like, yeah, the idea that we're presented with at the beginning is like, this is all one big family with Polly at the head of the family. And we pay tribute to Polly. And it's all about everybody's protecting each other's backs. The biggest thing you do is you don't tell on your friends. That's what we establish is this is how this world works. But then, what we where we are now is like, oh, Polly doesn't trust Henry. Polly doesn't trust Jimmy. Polly doesn't trust Tommy. Yeah. Henry is lying to Polly. Jimmy is betraying the people that did the job for him. Yeah. Um, people are not doing what Jimmy said by spending a lot of money. And so yeah. I go, oh, where we started saying the way this all works is because everybody trusts each other. What it actually is, is the way it all works is because nobody trusts each other. Right. Everybody is constantly hedging each bet and keeping this person away from that because Jimmy doesn't know is Henry more a Jimmy Tommy person or is Henry more a Polly person or is Henry, you know, you know, and is Henry telling Jimmy and Tommy about everything that he's doing? No, he's not like there's just there is no trust here that it's 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 every I think the only person Jimmy trusts is actually Tommy and Tommy is crazy. You know, and let me tell you something
3: because I'm in this mindset today as we're recording this. This is the film business. Oh, sure. This is the film business. This is not physically killing people, but you're killing their careers. You're, you know, you're keeping them from certain money. You're lying to them about how much you've made off something. So, I really – I work so hard now in all my shows to destroy the rose-colored glasses people see the film industry through or people see the creatives through. Like I'm not saying there aren't good people in Hollywood. I'm sure there are. But a majority of the people in Hollywood got to positions of power that they got to by doing nefarious, dirty, backstabbing shit, lying to people, purposely losing quote-unquote information – um, working behind their backs to uh, undercut them, you know, telling, as you said, um, telling film, never saying yes or no, just kind of saying maybe, um, and all of that is how the mafia business is running as well. So they're really, and again, I want to make this clear. I'm not saying that they kill people physically. I'm saying that the way they work, the business is dirty and they break rules all the time and they lie all the time. Um, And if the government monitored the film industry, uh, like they monitor organized crime, I guarantee you, you'd see more arrests and more of your heroes or the people you think are so great um, uh, be accused of some pretty nefarious shit. So that's uh, the thing I'm discovering more and more as I delve deeper into the film business, how bad it can be not not everyone obviously but how bad it can be. so when you look so people try to separate these things and it's like these corruptions all over the place man in, in big money and big business you know
2: well and what i'll what i would add to that is that there's also a lot of stupidity i mean yeah. like a lot of what's happening that we're seeing with jimmy and tommy and all this stuff is they're being dumb you know the sopranos in particular there's just so many choices they make where it's like oh that's so stupid The sopranos in the show in 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 the the show show, yeah 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 agreed yeah Yeah. where you're just like well why are you doing you were you were clear and then you did this thing and now you're fucked again that's hollywood all over and so it's like there's the combo of people being nasty and also this is what the short we just recorded is about people being stupid and making stupid choices and then being vindictive about their stupid choices and nasty about their stupid choices like no, I mean again, there is a, this is what we discussed in the short, but there's a reason why I don't really want to work in this industry. You yeah, know. Exactly,
3: exactly, And it's well, not because outside. I don't
2: like movies, you know. Yeah, um, uh, yeah,
3: I uh, like you, yeah, exactly. I walked away years ago. Uh, I've never looked back. The most I'll ever do is voiceovers, and I like doing what I'm doing now. And yeah, because that business you've got to make some real ethics decisions with yourself
2: the more you go up the chain. And yep. yeah, it's not, I mean, yeah. So yeah. Uh, the other thing that's interesting is the guy who's driving the car is Frankie Carbone. Now Frankie yeah. Carbone, he's going to die <laughs> in two scenes. Yes. My first question is, yeah. Did G- does Jimmy already know that he's going to kill him? Yes. I, I think Jimmy knows he's going to kill everybody. I had a thought and I don't, I, this is not me saying something that I think is true. It's just, I wonder yeah. is that sometimes directors They don't necessarily give the whole script to everybody. Mm, Like, and that would be really interesting if Scorsese hadn't given, didn't, if Frankie Carbone, when they shot this scene, didn't know that he was going to die. That would have been a great, I'm not saying that's true. I'm saying that would be an interesting directorial choice. Mm, Yeah. Uh, As you mentioned before, uh, Maury's wife comes to Henry and Karen because he hasn't come home and he always comes home. And then Henry now of course knows Maury is dead because that, you know, goes to, jimmy and goes what 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 should i tell bell and it's like well just the, he ran off with some broad yeah. he said what do you care yeah yeah what do you care that's exactly the big point yeah and then i like too that the fbi or cops undercover cops or whatever are watching And the, the jimmy goes up and knocks on the door and he says
0: come on fuckos let's go for a ride <laughs>
2: <laughs> you can't have too many
3: variations
2: of the word fuck can you i mean fuckos fuckball it's it's one of the great words of all time it's really
3: is one of the greatest words of all time
2: I mean, on, honestly, there is so there are many episodes of the Cinephiles where there was no reason for us to swear, <laughs> like we're doing Mary Poppins or something. <laughs> and any intelligent podcasters would go, maybe not have as many f bombs when That's true. Doing Mary Poppins. It's true, and yet we can't help ourselves because it's no, such a good no. fucking word. <laughs> um, so, and then we cut to these two kids with this expression on their face. Yeah. I think, you know, we've talked about needle drops throughout this whole movie. This is one of the great needle drops of all time. Yeah, dude. hundred percent. hundred percent. It's known as the piano exit, which I didn't know that, from the song Layla by Derek yeah. and the Dominoes. Mm-hmm. The music hits just as we cut to that same pink Cadillac. There's Johnny Rose Beef and his wife shot dead. Now we have a garbage truck and bodies come out of the garbage truck, including Mike Starr, who you mentioned, yep. whose name you brought up in our previous episode. We hear... I knew Jimmy.
1: He had the cash. It was his. I know he kicked some money upstairs to Paulie, but that was it. it made him sick to have to turn money over to the guys who stole it. He'd rather whack them.
2: It's the Joker. It's the Joker in yeah. Dark Knight, is that yeah. he's he's hired all these guys for a big score and he's going to kill them all off. Yeah, And the next shot is the camera is craning down to the back of this meat truck and then the camera moves into the meat truck. And by the way, when they did this on the set, first of all, the way you do this is that you have a steady cam guy who's standing on a crane. So mm-hmm. the, as the camera cranes down, when it gets to the meat truck level, he now walks off the crane onto the meat truck and mm-hmm. into the freezer. That's how you do the shot. Nice. Scorsese knew that the song was gonna be the piano exit from Layla from the script. And so to get the timing right, he's playing it on the set because he knows exactly the moment that he wants that camera to see Frankie Carbone frozen hanging in the meat truck. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, i That's just an incredible amount of vision.
1: When they found Carbone in the meat truck, he was frozen so stiff it took them two days to thaw him out
2: for the autopsy. And that is true, by the way. They did find a guy in a meat truck and it took him two days to thaw him out for the autopsy.
1: Still, I never saw Jimmy so happy. He was like a kid. We had money coming in through my Pittsburgh people and even after a while, the Lufthansa thing began to calm down. But the thing that made Jimmy so happy that morning was that this was the day that Tommy was being made.
2: And we're waiting for this event to happen. Tommy in a beautiful suit is kind of strutting through the house and talking to his mom who's saying congratulations. We think all this is gonna be great i think this is one of the most we're heading towards one of the most shocking moments in movies period yeah agreed agreed and then we
1: hear like you would say to uh, somebody you're gonna like this guy he's all right he's a good fella he's one of us you understand we were good fellas wise guys
2: and this brings us to a question from one of our patrons of course Hmm. if you support the show at patreon.com slash the cinephiles on some of our films you have the opportunity to to ask a question and we read some of those on the show. Hmm. And this one says, why do you think Scorsese called it Goodfellas? We only hear the phrase at the end of the film in Leota's closing monologue. We do however, hear the phrase wise guy throughout the the film. The title wise guy would also have worked, but I wonder if there was something about owning the book rights, but not the title. Who asked this question? uh, This is David Hawks, uh, one of our patrons. And the answer to this is that the book is called wise guy. Yeah. And the reason that the movie isn't called wise guy is because there was a TV show yep. <laughs> called wise guy. And that's. And wall. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. I used to watch that show. I love that show, but yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think good works better because of the, um, double meaning within it, you know, I agree. Uh, a good fellow, but then these are the same good fellas who kill you. So yeah. are they really good fellas? You know,
2: answer? No,
3: no, <laughs> <laughs> they're
2: not good fellas. Right. <laughs> um, uh, and then we hear what, what being made is and that Jimmy and Henry can't be made because they're not fully Sicilian. They have Irish blood. See, it's the highest honor they can give you. It means you belong
1: to a family and a crew. It means that nobody can fuck around with you. It also means you could fuck around with anybody just as long as they aren't also a member.
2: So we're going, wow, this is going to be great. He's been picked up in a car. He's They parked the car in this garage. We're going up in the house. There's a lot of chit-chatting. Uh, Jimmy walks out to a phone booth because he's got a signal. It's so important to him, he's got a signal to find out when this moment actually happens that Tommy gets made. And the way Scorsese does this is so incredible, which is it's chatty. Tommy walks into a wood panel room. We see from his point of view that the room he is walking into is empty. At the moment that he sees it, and realize it's empty, he starts to say, oh no. Mm -hmm. And he never quite finished finishing the no because at that moment, right at that second that he's in the middle of saying no, they shoot him in the back of the head, super bloody, and he goes down face first. Oh
3: no! (laughs) It's a great moment, Uh, and as you said, it's one of those moments you don't see coming the first time you watch the film, because he seems so untouchable. He seems so maniacal. Who would get the best of Tommy? Well, of course. It's one of uh, the most overweight uh, wise guys, and one of the oldest wise guys, guys you would not suspect to get the jump on Tommy. So this was planned out really well, and the way it goes down, opening the door, and it's it's the place where they, I think where they've played poker and he's killed spider. So it's the, Oh, is that it, where the location? Yeah. The, I mean oh, wow. the, the table set up there, it looks very mm. similar. I think that's where they were shooting. I mean, of course, you know, it's at that's daytime where we're shooting right. the death, but nighttime, I would imagine it's the same place. So they brought him in there and look, it's not some big, they don't rent a pool hall to do this. And you know, it's actually done in a room and you know from what I've read and stuff and, and real books, uh, a real, real life crime books. So he doesn't know anything till the last moment. So it's, you're absolutely right. The, the way it's shot, it's perfectly well done. Even Tommy busting balls with the guys. Oh, you've been around 30 years. Who did your, who made you bing, bong, bing, Tommy, bing, you know, making the jokes. So it seems like familiar and that he's safe so that when he walks in and gets the shot in the back, which I think it's the old guy who shoots him by the way. Yeah. Um, He goes right down or no, maybe it's the bigger guy who shoots him. I don't know, but he goes right down and it's over. It's a headshot and it's over, you know? And it's so shocking. It's kind of like what happened in Departed when you what happens to a certain character in, uh, off the elevator. You're like, oh, shit. Like, those moments, you live for those moments in movies because that means a story's got gotcha. if, if it can get that reaction from you, the story has got you. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I've always remembered this moment. Uh, and then what what they say next, what uh, Henry says about what they did next in the scene we're about to get to with De Niro on the phone.
2: Well, and, and what I'd like to say, too, is that I think, part of it is the setup is that we were worried about Tommy when he killed Billy bats. We are mm-hmm. like, Oh shit, this is going to be really bad. And mm-hmm. then when we see him, you know, shoot the sh- spider in the foot and then sh- kill spider. And we're like, Oh my God. But now we've forgotten about that. We're like, we're past that. Obviously yeah. we got away with the Billy bats thing. The spider thing didn't have a lot of consequences. Yeah. Tommy's a bit crazy, but everything's going really well. So we're, yeah. it, it comes completely out of the blue. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, and I'm just going to say something totally bizarre, but this is how I feel watching this movie. And I know part of this is I'm an atheist and everything, but yeah. the way Tommy dies in this moment is like death is fucking permanent. You're alive yeah. and then you're dead and it's, there's nothing, you know, death is nothing. That's how this moment makes me feel, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we're with, as you said, Jimmy's on the phone. He's talking to Vinny, which is actually Charles Scorsese. That's who's the voice on the other line. Oh, nice. Yeah. And, and I love, again, as you mentioned earlier, we're kind of talking in code.
0: Jenny, what happened? Well, we get straight out? No, we had a problem. I
3: mean,
2: uh, we tried to do everything we could. I love that line because yeah. it's saying all of this sort of, there were negotiations with the Billy yeah. Bats people. You know what I mean? Like, we yeah. tried to do everything we could. And you see the realization come over De Niro's face. What
3: do you mean? Well, you know what I mean? He's gone. And we couldn't do nothing about it. That's it. What do you mean?
2: What do you mean? Uh... He's gone. He's gone. saying De Niro is a great actor is like just a ridiculous understatement. But what he does as he reacts to this and it hits his face and then he realizes that Tommy's gone and he bangs that receiver on the on the phone booth. And what's so great is, what he does so well is the, this is a guy who never cracks, mm-hmm. and now he's cracking. Yeah, I love that because, and I love the performance
3: uh, from, uh, it was a Scorsese, uh, um, his brother, his dad? Is that was on the phone? Yeah. Yeah. The way he delivers the first part, uh, there's nothing we could do about it. We, we tried, there's nothing we could do, he's gone. And the second time, there's a little bit of a crack in his voice, which I mm. like, because it allows... And I don't know if it's on purpose or not, and and no one Scorsese it probably was because he's so smart about these things. It leads us subconsciously into feeling bad for Tommy and Jimmy, even though Tommy is this ruthless, ruthless son of a bitch. We still feel bad by Jimmy's reaction to it, right? He, you can we haven't, as you said, we haven't seen him crack once in the whole film, and here he is crying in the phone booth. And I think the guy going, there was nothing we could do. There was a little bit of a crack there. It Mm. leads us into Jimmy's reaction so smartly. Um, And then, De as you said, man, listen, nonverbal acting is some of the most difficult acting you'll ever do. And you think it, it, some of you watch it and you think it's easy. It's really not. Because you have to believably run through all these emotions and these thoughts as you're creating what's happening on your face. And that is not easy to do without words. So... I've always marveled at
2: what De Niro, as you said, such a great actor, was doing in this scene.
0: They whacked him. They fucking whacked
2: And I, I'm sure you've had these moments where some unexpected thing has happened. And you yeah. can see De Niro, his mind not even accepting that Tommy's gone. And then you know he kicks the phone booth, which by the way, I think the real Jimmy Burke, this did happen. He did get the news on a phone. He did kick over a phone booth. Oh, wow. He just starts sobbing. And and, and you could see, too, that Ray Liotta, that Henry thinks about touching him. Yes. You know, Great. to comfort That's him. Good. Yeah. But does not. Right. An arm goes out, but then he yeah, pulls it back. Yeah. Um, and I also go, I personally do not think that Jimmy would have anywhere near this reaction if he found out Henry had died. No. Hell no. Hell no. But I want to ask you something, because this occurred to me as I was
3: watching this time around, and I've never had this thought as I was watching it, which is, I think, an element of why our show is so good, is i watch movies completely differently now, with different, um, uh, how can I say it, different things turned on, shall we say, different sensors turned on. But we just heard Henry say, I've never seen Jimmy so happy, even though he's killing all these people in the Lotanza situation, yes, he's keeping the money, but... You know, clearly he's scared or threatened, which is why he's killing all these people. He doesn't want the cops or the feds to connect him to it. But then again, all these deaths are gonna lead back to him eventually. So this is the move actually of a desperate guy. And so Henry's saying, Oh, you never seen him so happy, and he's eating the food, and we see De Niro through the window, like slamming down the food, and he's beep bop looping, and then he gets the <laughs> call, so to speak, and then he gets the call. And he totally loses it. So to me, what occurred to me this time around, and and it may be wrong, but I think he's crying from the stress of everything. And he's letting it out because the death of Tommy has unlocked that. And I don't know if he's crying as much for Tommy as he is for himself. And as because we see later when Henry and Karen get rid of the drugs and whatever, Henry collapses in the corner crying. So I just wonder if this is Jimmy's way of crying And no one cries better than, I'm sorry, no one cries better than De Niro on screen. It's fucking great. I love his crying. (laughs) It's fucking so good. But, like, I wonder if he's crying for himself out of the stress of everything, because the feds are getting closer, he's having to kill all these people, Uh, and now Tommy is gone, which could have been a buffer for him, and the guy he sent out to kill all these people, so now his right-hand man uh, is gone as well, so... I just wonder if uh, these tears are
2: more for him than they are for Tommy. Here, I, I think it's a great point. And here's where, it, where it took my brain, mm. which is that these guys are all living in the future. Mm-hmm. You know, they're all living going once I make this score. Oh yeah. Totally, totally. Then things will be good and I'll be happy. And I think, yeah, I think, yes, Jimmy, we heard uh, Henry said that he's extremely anxious and he's freaked out about all the Lutonza stuff. And I think he, Jimmy went, I think it is exactly what you said. Yeah. I think it is Tommy's death, but he went, okay, I've made this score. Once Tommy is made, then everything is going to be okay. That then things right. will be good. That's and so you know. Tommy dying, it's the real, it, it, yes, he does genuinely feel for Tommy and that makes him sad, but it's a realization of like, it will never be okay. There is yeah, no, okay. Yeah. There, the, this is, this is the life. This is what I'm at some. And at some point the gun's going to come for me, you know, yeah. like I'll just be stressed forever. Um, We hear through the voiceover as we go back kind of the shot and watch blood pouring out of Tommy's head as he's face down on the floor that it was revenge for Billy Bats. It was among the Italians. It was real greaseball shit. They even
1: shot Tommy in the face so his mother couldn't give him an open coffin at the funeral.
2: (laughs) And it's funny because this is where now this because this thought won't leave my head is we really don't see the victims. We never see Tommy's mom. You know, we don't. Oh, no, we don't, no, no. Right, exactly. We're, we're done with her. We, you know, we don't need to go, because if we went to see her, we would feel more bad, but yeah. we're not going to go do that.
3: So one of the things in doing research for the show that I discovered, which I've talked about in, in all three parts here, is that it's a very strong belief that Karen was having an affair with Paulie. Now, Henry claims, the real Henry Hill claims that the character who is Tommy, that actual real-life person tried to rape Karen while mm. Henry was in prison. Okay. So what some people have speculated is that because Paulie and her were having an affair, he found out about Tommy trying to rape her and he waited till the right moment oh. to kill him, that he turned him, turned Tommy over to the the Billy B- Bats people so they could have the information on who to kill and then set the whole thing. up. And so, that's what a lot of these um people who've written books about the situation speculate with their strong sources, is that Paulie had Tommy killed actually because of Tommy trying to rape Karen because he had a he had an affair with her. So wow. it's an interesting angle, right? It isn't it, it isn't just about he killed a main guy, because I'm pretty sure the mob is littered with people who've killed main guys and got away with it this is the history of the mob brother. This is something that maybe had a little more of a personal flair to it. Uh, And so who better knows Tommy than Pauly and who knows better how to uh, get his defenses down than Pauly by sending the two guys that he sent to to kill him. So I just, it's a fascinating thing to think about and it it's him using the Billy bat situation as an excuse to kill this guy because he had feelings for Karen and maybe even in some fucked up way, standing up for her kind of like henry did with the gun
2: when uh, henry beat that guy up who tried to assault her in the car so wow that's just crazy and it just goes to again the difference between there is the code and we all live by this yeah code, yeah, yeah and the reality of there's no code yeah you know so, we, 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 we use the code when it's useful to us and when we don't want the code we don't use the code yeah um any business welcome to anything <laughs> yeah and then up on screen, again, if we have a specific date and time, we know important things are happening. It's Sunday, May 11th, 1980, 655 AM. Last day as a wise guy. Yeah. When they're editing this, they did a lot of experiments. They said, We're not, we're no longer following the rules. They've already been pushing the rules really hard. And you know, I taught when I think in our last part talking about this idea of the, the good cut, the seamless, beautiful cut that you never see. Yeah. We're not going to be doing that. We are going to be, every cut is a little faster. Like one of the things, you know, I always think everything's too long. That's, a, that's a, yeah. a basic rule of editing is it's too long. And if you can cut it out, cut it out. And so as I'm editing a scene, I'll cut it shorter and shorter and tighter and tighter and get that pace, that really good pace. And then it always gets to a place where I've cut it too far. <laughs> and it become, and the word we use is cutty. It's now feels cutty. I'm aware of the cuts. It's happening too fast. Oh, the pace right. is off. And then you go, I'm going to put some air back in. I've cut it down too far. It's too short. It's too tight. I'm going to give it some, I'm going to let it breathe. I'm going to let it have some space. And then that's usually the right cut. This is cutty. This is, we're going to cut it down and sharp and tight and everything is kinetic and happening. And that's just brilliant, brilliant fucking editing. Mm-hmm. The song, by the way, is Jump Into Fire from Harry Nielsen. <laughs> and we're snorting a lot of coke and we load a bunch of guns into a brown paper bag and we look up. And we see a helicopter overhead. That helicopter is going to be real important. We throw some guns in the trunk. We slam the trunk um, closed. We go out driving. There is stuff happening constantly. Yeah. And we hear all the things that he has to do today. Dropping off guns. He's got to pick his brother up at the hospital. He's got to pick up some more drugs for the Pittsburgh stuff for Lois. He's got all this stuff going on. He's looking up at the helicopter. He goes to Jimmy, who answers the door in a robe and jimmy rejects the guns and says
0: what the fuck are these things don't fit what's the matter with you what do we what do you want me to pay for this shit i'm not paying for it
2: and then he says stop with those fucking drugs they're making your mind into mush so here's my question yeah is jimmy right that these silencers don't fit and henry is fucking up or is henry right that jimmy's just giving him a hard time Ooh, that's a good question oof
3: I can't answer that question knowledge, but maybe the rare moment on the cinephiles, I cannot like, answer that question knowledge because I think both of them are right and wrong, because I think yeah, both of them are paranoid right. in different ways. Yep. Right? And so, like, maybe De Niro, maybe uh, Jimmy is rejecting those guns at this point because Jimmy isn't sure if he can trust Henry or whatever, so he's making up a reason not to take the guns, and then Henry is, uh, through because he's in a drug haze, is yeah. f- well, making mistakes, so yeah, I, I don't know which uh, who to believe in this one. They're you both very the How about that? Yeah,
2: the, there's the great joke of it's not paranoid if you know everyone's against you. <laughs> yeah, if they are um, actually coming after, yeah. I think this is this is a perfect example of Henry is paranoid, yeah. and everyone is coming after him. Like a helicopter might not be following him. A helicopter might be following. It could be different helicopters. Some of which are following him. Some of which aren't. But the point is people are following him, you know, like yeah. he's right about that. He might not. He might be wrong about some of the stuff's going on. Yeah. And we hear more monologues and smoking and driving and looking up at the copter and then super tense. There's an accident right in front of him. And again, the cutting as he slams on the brake and just barely misses the accident. You ever done that? I've Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course I've done that. Every, everyone who drives has had that moment.
3: Oh, you twice. know, yeah, I've had that twice recently. Fucking scary. San Diego can be scary, man.
2: Mm. I mean, you know, like and when I was younger and maybe not mm. as good a driver and I'm looking over, it's, I got distracted by something. I did rear end someone. Yeah. And no one was hurt, but it was like, right. yeah. yeah, I had one. One of the scariest ones was someone, you know, a thing happened or there was an accident right in front of me. I slammed on my brakes and I knew I could stop in time. And then I looked in my rear view mirror and saw the big truck coming behind me. That Oof. wasn't going to stop in time. Oh, God. and then I managed to like pull onto the shoulder, yeah. to get out of the way of the truck. That was Good. one of the scariest ones. I bet. Um, and now we're at the hospital p- to pick up his brother, who's in a wheelchair. And the doctor is like, "You know what's wrong with you? Mm. We need to examine you." Uh, the doc- doctor, by the way, is Isaiah uh, Whitlock Jr. from The Wire and all sorts of stuff. Shit. Yeah. Um, he barely been on a movie set before this movie. <laughs> Um, I like too that the doctor gives him gives him some valium to take yeah. with him. He actually really cares about him. You know, he's like, yes. hey, let me
3: take care of you because uh, you look pretty frazzled. Yeah, it's funny. It
2: might it might be the only genuinely warm, nice thing in the no. movie. You know, you might be right. You might hundred percent be right. Maybe that's why it stands out so much. I mean, other than Catherine Scorsese making food for them, but where you've got a body in the trunk of a car at that moment. So we're not really thinking about it. But there's not a lot of genuine warmth here in this film. Do you,
3: Let me ask you something. Do you think she knew what her son was up to? Do you think she knew uh, how crazy Tommy was? I mean, come on. No way he doesn't, like,
2: scare so, his mom at certain moments, don't you think? I definitely think she knows that he's in the mob. Right. You know, because she grew, she grew up with this. This is his family.
4: Yeah.
3: I I mean, when he's going to get made, she like, you know, adjusts his suit and says, you be careful. You look great. I love you. Congratulations. So she's aware this motherfuckers
2: getting made in the mafia,
3: you know?
2: So here, here's what I think. I think there are three levels. (laughs) There is the, I kind of know that he's into bad stuff and can have a temper and, you know, can do, and and has probably done some things. But I don't really want to think about that, so I put that aside. So the, the she thinks the truth is, yeah, he does some stuff. That's one level. But I'm going to put that down. I'm going to repress those thoughts and think of him as a good kid. Okay. And the actual level is he's so much worse than what her worst imaginings of what he is. Oh, are. right. Good point. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. yeah that's yeah. what I mean by kind of three look what what I pretend to think, what yeah. I really think, and the truth. <laughs> that's that's what I think is going. On. That's how I put it. Okay. See, I was cooking dinner that night. I had to start braising the beef, pork butt, and veal shanks for the tomato sauce. This is Catherine Scorsese's tomato sauce re- recipe. Yeah. And burning that sauce was a major sin in the Scorsese house. If you let it get too hot, you didn't stir it enough, That was you would be in big shit. Um, and he talks about the recipe and the ziti and all the stuff that he's making. A, by the way, Henry Hill was apparently an excellent cook. Oh, wow. And later, after he was in the witness protection program, he worked as a cook. That's one of the jobs that he had. He was a genuinely really good cook, loved to cook. The way they were talking about how they wanted to edit this was that all things were equal, of equal value. The drugs and the drug deal was equal to the helicopter. The helicopter was equal to the guns. The guns are equal to the tomato sauce. The tomato sauce is equal to picking up his brother from the hospital. Like there is no, because of the, you know, cocaine induced psychosis, there are no senses of priorities. Everything is desperate and everything must happen, you know, including just get the tomato sauce, right. (laughs) And then Karen and he are going to go out and unload the guns. And he gives his instructions and they go outside. And now Karen has seen the uh, helicopter. Yeah, they go. And then it's like, things are happening so fast. You know, we dump the guns at mom's, and they look up, there's no helicopter. And they we're on a payphone. And then he's calling someone who thinks he's paranoid about the helicopters. And then they go back and they pick up the guns, they go to the knock on a guy's door. And this is the guy from Pittsburgh, mm-hmm. and he's gonna buy the guns. And there's this moment where Karen who has been smoking and also looks sweaty and yeah. bags under eyes and not so good says I need a hit and she goes off to snort yeah. cocaine and this is where I go oh she's fully in uh, you know yeah. what I mean yes and of course if you if you've read the history of them
3: and cuz their kids wrote a book the two kids mm. wrote a book about their life on the run with Karen and, and Henry that, like, Karen was very much involved. In fact, Karen's sisters and their maternal grandparents raised them a lot of the times while Karen and Henry mm. were, were doing the crimes. So, that's I mean, she got into the witness protection program and she got to essentially get away and redo her life. But, you know, she committed crimes. I don't know if she ever served a day in prison for the crimes that she committed as part of henry's situation so yeah interesting situation
2: and i love again as we're in you know selling guns and karen's doing some more coke we hear just the craziness of my plan was i had to get home
1: and get the package ready for lois to take on her trip also i had to get to sandy's house to give the package a whack with quinine. plus i knew sandy was going to get on my ass Then I had the cooking to finish at home, and I had to get Lois ready for her trip.
2: I mean, the craziness of – although, I mean, in reality, I have had days like this, you know? Yeah, no. Oh, shit. Yeah, 100%. But but I didn't – but my days like this didn't involve cocaine, mobsters, the FBI, helicopters following us. You know, like it's crazy what's going on. It's crazy, too, that he answers a phone call from Sandy while yeah. Karen is there, right right in the same room. Yeah, maybe she's in the bathroom or something doing coke. I'm not sure. Okay. Yeah. And then he calls up Lois, who is supposed to make another run to Pittsburgh, and goes over what she's supposed to do. And Lois is going like, yeah, I know what to do. And the big thing he tells her is to make sure that she leaves the house and calls from an outside line. And she goes, Of course.
1: I'm fucking believable. All of them. Every fucking
2: girl in my life. And it's like, dude, you you set this up. Yeah. <laughs> you know this is your fault. Yeah. We see Lois on the phone making the phone call, not from an outside line, holding a plane ticket, and there is a black box on the plane ticket that has been Yeah, they cover the American Airlines logo. Yeah. Which I find weird. Like I would it's strange to me because it's it's like, I probably would have just not used that shot or used a different shot so you didn't see the logo. Putting the black box brings attention to, to that fact, which is not yeah. – but says he's a genius, so I'll defer to him rather than my choice. Oh, yeah. I like the black
3: box, actually, because it makes it seem a little more nefarious, right, that this was mm-hmm. redacted. You know, it kind of has that little vibe to it. And- Clearly, American Airlines didn't want them, to, or maybe this was on purpose. Maybe Scorsese, no. maybe American Airlines was fine, and Scorsese was like, "No, no
2: it was from American Airlines." It, it definitely American Airlines said they went to get permission okay. to use it, and they said, "We don't want to be associated with this at all. You cannot use American." <laughs> That's how they that came about. That's awesome. Um, Oh. So man. and then he you know so we know that now someone listened and when she made this phone call mm-hmm. now he gets back home and he's back to the cooking to make sure that his brother is going to keep watching the place and now we head over to Sandy's mm-hmm. and there's this moment by the way where we see him snort some cocaine and the camera just flies in as the drugs hit him. Yeah. And his eyes are red and bloodshot and it just looks he looks crazed. Yeah, he does. And we're having we're back at dinner, we're having arguments and then Lois is like, No, I can't go until we go get my hat. You got to get my lucky hat. And so now the lucky hat is important. I love this actress,
3: by the way. I think it's, I
2: think her name's Welker White.
3: Um, but he has used her a couple of times. He, he, she was in The Irishman. She played, um, oh, she played Jimmy, she played Pacino's wife, Jimmy Hoffa's wife in, in The Irishman. So, um, she was so unusual in the movie because of her look. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? And the way mm-hmm. she, treated henry so um she's always kind of stuck in my mind a little bit kind of like the woman in the pit in Science of the lambs that actress who of course is on Mm. no no, gray's anatomy and other things it's kind of always stuck in my mind certain actors and so i've always thought she had an unusual look for this film and so it works so well the way she's so dismissive of henry the whole time i think is great and the hat thing is genius, just I, genius, man.
2: I, I think part of what's great about her is the contrast with the Henry Hill, Karen energy. Ah, uh, yeah. She's so like, Hill. whatever. Right. Like, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they're manic and crazed, you know? Right, right. So we go out to the car because we got to get a, a hat and there is suddenly a gun to his head and we hear,
0: Freeze, freeze! Don't you move, you motherfucker. I'll blow your brains out.
2: Shut the car off slowly. And I love what he says.
1: For a second, I thought I was dead. But when I heard all the noise, I knew they were cops. Only cops talk that way. Don't
0: fucking move. If they
2: had been wise guys, I wouldn't have heard a thing. Which, of course, is exactly what we just saw, both with Stax and, of course, with Tommy. Yeah. Is the gun to the back of the head and you're dead. And that's it. We're up with Karen, who runs up the stairs. We hear banging on the doors because the cops are coming in. She's trying to dump the heroin in the toilet. And then we hear the banging, and she finds a gun in the drawer and slips it like into her panties, and she is terrified and scared and crazed and out of control. Is it wrong that I find that moment sexy? It's sexy. It is I it's sexy. I think it's, it's, it's sexy. Yeah,
3: and it kind of fits with what, again, when she held the gun after Henry had
2: used. Oh yeah, and said like, "It's a great point."
4: Yeah.
2: Um. So what's interesting is that. Karen did dump a whole bunch of drugs <laughs> but she didn't do it when the police were coming she oh. did it after Henry had gotten arrested she was alone she went there was a stash that the police had never found so he was she, right they would never find it Karen he was yes fine. okay he was complete or or yeah it seems like he was right it didn't it didn't go down this way uh we have another question from our patron John Lino asks hi guys do you agree with me on this scorsese is just not a strong finisher Goodfellas, Gangs of New York, Casino, Wolf of Wall Street, just to name a few. The last quarter of most of his movies are usually the worst part of those films. He even seems to change his style of filmmaking at the end. The actors themselves seem sometimes exhausted and lacking in intensity. Do you think he loses some interest towards the end of his films, since the first half is always so packed with the film's most memorable scenes? I love the films, but many are tough to watch through the end. Like how people complain about the end of Return of the King. You have an expression on your face (laughs) that makes me think that John might have has struck some kind of a chord with you. No, please, please, you respond first. Cause you know, just just because I'm passionate doesn't necessarily mean I should go first. So please. So I I wouldn't say that I don't think he's a good finisher, but what I do think is particularly with Goodfellas, definitely with Wolf of Wall Street, probably I think this with Casino as well, the first halves or three quarters of those films are really fun. You know, and then you get you watch, you know, we're talking about essentially tragedies of characters that aren't necessarily great people. Yes. So it's sort of, you know, you have all you're propelled forward through all of this insanity and then it all falls apart. So the emotionally it's a not fun, not fulfilling experience. And it's not a tragedy in the sense of a great tragedy where you're sobbing and weeping at the end of the thing. You're not having, you have no catharsis. It's more like here was a bunch of exciting things. And now, you know, Jordan Belford is doing weird uh seminars where he's having <laughs> people try to sell him a pen. And you're like, well, how do I feel about that? And it's not, you know what I mean? It's not catharsis. It's exciting at the beginning. And then, and then falls apart, you know? Yeah.
3: So John, let me tell you something. I used to agree with you, John. I used to, because this is one of the reasons I wasn't always the biggest fan of Goodfellas, because I hate the last 30 of the minutes of the movie. But what I've had to do is take a look at myself in the mirror. And I encourage you to do the same, John, and say, why don't I like the last 30 minutes or the last 10 minutes of the movie? And it's not because Marty can't finish this movie, these movies. It's because the way he finishes these movies makes you feel like you it kills the buzz and the high you were on enjoying the first 2 hours and 15 or hour and 45 minutes of the movie because you were because you were liking these characters even though you know they're not good people you were liking these characters so what Scorsese does and he tried to do in Killers of Flower Moon I don't think he succeeded is that he turns the camera back on you in those last 20 30 minutes to show you what this life leads to what Jordan Belfort's decisions led to, what um, uh, Henry Hill and Jimmy and, and Tommy's decisions le- and Karen's decisions led to. In, in Gangs of New York, I, can't, I just don't like that movie after the first 10 minutes, so I can't speak to that. But what he's trying to do is show you the actual truth of what ha- ends up happening to you in this life. So it is a deconstruction of the myth that he has taken you on for the first hour and 45 minutes or two hours and 15 minutes of the movie. And it is a hard thing to accept because you've been liking it. So it isn't that he's run out of energy. Quite the opposite is that he's put his energy into making it really clear to you that what you should leave from this movie is not admiring these people, but rather uh, feeling icky about these people and rightfully feeling like these people are terrible people. So he has to destroy the myth and the veneer of the smoothness and fun um, approach to all of this and the cool lines and the, the scary moments from the cool actors that you just witnessed so that you can um, kind of take a look at yourself and realize that you were enjoying these people and maybe you need to not enjoy these people quite so much going forward in the future. So I think that's his goal, right? And that's why he turns Jordan into a clown selling pens with people who are wearing clothes from Ross dress for less why he turn at the end, when we're about to get to the uh, court scene where you see Tom, uh, um, Jimmy and Paulie looking r- way less powerful and like nobodies. And that we get these moments uh, to the end where he's, you know, at the house. So all of this is to show the deconstruction of the myth that you just bought um, through it all. So it, it's a, it's, it's not subtle, but it is, purposeful in how he's trying
2: to make you change your perception of what you just watched, which I think is gutsy, you know? So I just had a full epiphany, not, not Mm. just a full epiphany about Goodfellas and everything that you were just saying, but also I think just about humans in general. And this Mm. is what the epiphany was. There's all these things about, there are all these status markers in Goodfellas, all these things that make you go, this is an important person. Yeah. And that we tend to judge the value of a person Based on the clues given to us by those status markers. Mm -hmm. So you see somebody with money, with prestige, where they have power, people fear them, people do what they want them to do, things like that. And we go, that must be an impressive person. Right. Because all the status markers are telling us that. And what this movie is, the thing is, is the reason these people have all these status markers is because they cheat. Yes, because they're criminals, not because they're impressive, because they're breaking the rules, like succeeding. Like there are like like Rocky Balboa is an impressive person. He has very few status markers to show that. But he has courage and character and he works hard and he does all those things that make him. Wow, this is an amazing person. Henry Hill is not an impressive person. I mean, he has some steel. We've talked about that. He has some courage, you know, but like, you know, it's like making money by putting a gun to somebody's head head and taking their money is the antithesis of having skills or accomplishments or things like that and what we see like Jordan Belfort yeah he's super rich you know why he's rich because he fucking cheats yeah exactly Because he's fucking robbing he's breaking the rules so like he has the status because he has all the money but he got the money by something that we should not respect in any way and that's what we're seeing fall apart is these arts Henry's acting like an idiot here you know right because this is
3: what it all leads to all this glory and money, and you know, cheating the government, and all this fun stuff that you were enjoying in the first hour and forty-five minutes of the movie, or two
2: hours. This is what it all leads to—is all crashing onto the rocks. We see on screen the aftermath, and we are getting brought into but by, by the cops. We see Lois in handcuffs. They all looked wrecked. We see Karen. Sandy gets brought in.
0: Bye, bye, dickhead. <laughs> <laughs> See you in
2: Attica, Dick. <laughs> and he's in an orange jumpsuit
4: i spoke to jimmy he offered to give me some money he just wants to know what's happening he just wants to talk to you
2: why do you think jimmy wants
3: to talk to him i think we know why jim wants to, talk to him. he wants to he wants to find
2: out if he's gonna squeal or not yeah um and, and, and figure and, out when he's leaving yeah yeah and, and and in all likelihood set up the plan to kill him
1: Karen, they could whack me in here just as easy as they can outside. Maybe even easier. They're all afraid I'm going to rat them out. People are already walking away from me. I'm dead in here. you got to get me out.
2: He comes out. He's looking paranoid. See, Jimmy knew
1: if Pauly found out he was in the drug deals with me, Pauly would have Jimmy
2: whacked even before me. So this is, this is one of the big things with Jimmy is that Jimmy has been lying to Pauly, too.
3: Yeah. Right. 100%. Yeah. Um, he's
2: been
3: going in business with Henry as well, yeah. Karen,
1: where's the stuff that I left, Karen? I flushed
2: it down the toilet. How many times have you said, where are the drugs, Karen, <laughs> to my Karen?
3: Yeah, it's true, true. Uh, for years, yeah, absolutely. It's been a fun little banter with me <laughs> and, your, uh, and your ex-wife uh, talking about that. And so it's been fun because, you know, I'd really get to use that. <laughs> I don't know many Karens in my life, so Karen I think is the only one I know. So I get to ma- occasionally joke about it and, and stuff, and because it's a line that just sticks with you yeah. when you watch the movie, because it's also followed by Lorraine Bracco's screams of and crying of realizing that they are they uh, they're out of options, you know, and well, and Henry finally breaks, which he hasn't broken in the whole movie, you know.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think he was he was barely holding it together as it was. He was right on the edge of, you know, it's like we talked about with Jimmy at Tommy's death is that he's right on the edge. And the one thing he's holding on to is I got $60,000 worth of drugs stashed in the house. And that's going to allow us to get back on our feet and get back doing stuff. And he is angry at her. He's banging the wall. She's freaking out. She goes to her knees weeping and he squats down in the corner, sobbing. And they, and they end up together huddled yeah. in the corner. Yeah. Huh? You know, like, it, it, it you know, I could, I, I don't know how I feel. Well, I do know how I feel. This is not a good relationship in no. any way, Fair but time. there are moments where all they have is each other, you know? Yeah. And
3: I don't know what Henry was thinking. Like, you know, I just got out of jail. I'm going to try and sell drugs. That's $60,000 worth of drugs. I'll be able to get, you know, in a good position for myself. And it's like, what are you thinking?
2: You know? Yeah. Luckily, really, he wasn't thinking straight, you know? Of course not. They're never. I mean, like they make terrible choices. Yeah, the movie. Terrible choices. <laughs> I love that we kind of hear a car sound and they're asleep together, and the camera just pans down to his hand holding onto the gun, and it's just a scary moment. Yeah. And then, with tears in his eyes, he goes to see Polly, and Mea culpa says, "I fucked up," and but he's all, and I love, I love that he says, "You know, I can be trusted now, Polly. I'm clean. On my kids, I'm clean." it's like looking at the guy. I don't think that's the image that he's putting forth. No, not at all.
3: But of course, people who are involved in these drug things, they actually think they come off as way more calm than they actually are. Like we saw in the Jordan
2: Belford thing. Oh, I drove home safely. And it's like, no, you really no, didn't. You really didn't. And Paul Servino's great in this moment. Oh, yeah.
0: You looked in my eyes, you liked
1: it. You treated me like a fucking jerk. Like I was never nothing
2: to you so good in that moment yeah I gotta turn my back on you now uh that he's yeah he says i'm gonna turn my back on you and he hands him a big water of bills and walks away yeah now but by, by the way Polly is like cooking while this is going on yes and it looks like he's in a restaurant is he is Polly working in a restaurant I think he bought a restaurant okay it's weird he's working in a restaurant yeah that would seem very odd yeah um and he gives him 3200 bucks and he turns his back on him so here's what's interesting in my understanding. And this is when you brought up the whole thing about Karen and Polly. This yeah, is yeah. the moment I thought of. It wasn't Henry that went to see Polly and got given $3,200. It, it was Karen. Oh this wow. was Karen. So yeah. then, yeah, then they had the relation. They had the, the situation. Yeah. And he's talking with Karen and they're going, we got to get out.
1: I don't want to do that, Henry. Is that what you want? Cameron, if we stay around here, we're dead. You got it. We're dead.
4: They're right. You took too much of that stuff. You're totally
1: paranoid.
2: And then she's talking to Jimmy. And Jimmy is asking, very <laughs> concerned how Henry is. And and he says, and I love lines like this. He says,
3: you know what kind of questions they've been asking? him? they tell you? Jimmy, I don't know.
2: <laughs> and that is a perfect, and what, what, again, De Niro's so good, is he says it in a perfectly, almost sincere, but not quite sincere way, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just enough for us to not trust him.
0: Tell him he's got to call me, okay? As soon as you talk to him, he's got to call me. we got to work on this whole thing. It's very important.
2: He
1: doesn't know I came down here to see you. You know, it's like he's crazy.
2: Because she thinks Henry's paranoid. Right. She still is holding on to the belief that she has relationships with these people. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's a little bit of a babe in the woods thing. Yeah. Yeah. And he gives her some money and he gives her a hug and he calls her honey. And then he says,
3: Listen, I got some beautiful Dior dresses. You want to have them? Pick out a few for yourself.
2: She starts to go up to the stairs, which I guess is where they regularly staff stuff.
0: No, 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 it's over here. It's in a store in a corner. It's swag, so I got it down the corner.
2: Now, normally, a human would walk you to the place. Right. They wouldn't just yeah. stand and kind of point, but clearly not move. And she's walking down the alley, and the camera is moving with her. And then it pans back to Jimmy, who has clearly not moved forward. No, nah,
3: no. Nah. Right on there. Right on the corner. Yeah, it's over there. Right
2: there. It's hard to describe how scary this scene is, you yeah. know? Yeah. No, it's true. It's middle of the daylight. She's just walking along, and he's wa- not going with her. Right. And then she, the camera cranes up, and she looks up, and she sees some guys that are working there doing something. And then she's scared.
0: Go ahead. It's right in there. Oh, Jimmy, I'm in a
1: hurry. My mom's watching the kids. I gotta get home. I'll come back later.
2: And she gets in the car and she gets the hell out of there. She takes off. Yeah. And I think if you didn't think that Jimmy was about to kill Karen or have her killed, the look on his face after Mm -hmm. she drives away makes it real clear. Yeah, And now, she's in the driveway and he comes up to her and now she's scared and now she believes comes out with
3: that gun yeah
2: yep and we've made the turn if you're part
1: of a crew nobody ever tells you that they're going to kill you doesn't happen that way there aren't any arguments or curses like in the movies See, your murderers come with smiles they come as your friends The people have cared for you all of your life and they always seem to come at a time when you're at your weakest and most in need of their
2: help. We're at a restaurant and we see Jimmy waiting at a table and yet they greet each other with hugs and big smiles. And then they sit there and we're in a two shot looking at them and it does, which is, I never noticed this before. But the camera does a zolly, which is that vertigo effect where the camera is either pushing in or zooming out or zooming in and, and pulling back. And it gives this weird distortion. But normally when you do it, like in Jaws or in Vertigo, go. it happens really fast. So it's very noticeable, the distortion. Okay. This one's happening really slow. Mm-hmm. So I didn't notice it at first. It just gives you this weird sense as they're talking.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: And then at the end of the scene, Jimmy gives him a job to go down to Florida and do a hit with Anthony.
1: Jimmy had never asked me to whack somebody before but now he's asking me to go down to Florida and do a hit with Anthony. That's when I knew I would never have come back from Florida alive. What I think
2: uh, Scorsese does really well is set up, because at the beginning, we started with, you know, the first time he got arrested, you did the right thing, you didn't rat on your friends, you didn't tell anything. And this movie is about what is going to make him rat on his friends. And we've seen all the steps, we've seen Polly turning back his back on him. We've seen that Jimmy wants to talk to him ostensibly, probably to find out if he has to kill him. And Karen was the one resisting going, Hey, you're paranoid. Then we see Karen get scared by Jimmy. So now she's in the place. Now Henry goes, look, Jimmy's going to have me killed. At this point, there is no other choice than to go to the cops. True. I guess. Yeah. The feds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The guy he goes to talk to the cop, is actually the real prosecutor of Henry Hill. This is Ed McDonald. He's
3: perfect in this scene with
2: the authenticity yeah. of it all. So yeah. good. Yeah. And basically they're talking about the witness protection Pro- program and Karen is going, well, maybe I don't go with you. Maybe you go without me.
1: The only way they can get to him is by getting to you, getting to your kids. If he goes into the program, forget about it. You're in a great deal of danger. I, think you I don't know anything. It. Come on. You don't know anything. Don't give me the babe in a
2: woods routine, Karen. I've listened to those wiretaps. And I've heard you on a telephone. You're talking about cocaine. And by the way, Ed McDonald really did say exactly these words to Karen. To Pushed <laughs> her in the witness protection program. So, again,
3: to go back to John's question, yes, this scene is super important. There's nothing exhausting about this scene. He's not exhausted as a filmmaker. This is a scene on purpose. These people that you've been enjoying in the film, and I think this is what happens sometimes. When people watch these movies. These great actors play these roles, so it allows us to kind of have this cognitive disconnect with the actions that they're taking in the movie, right? Like, we play this game, as you said earlier, Steve, with uh, uh, Tommy's mom, The Three Levels. But when we're watching these movies, we're playing this game with our minds as well. Like, we know logically the things they are doing are not good, but the movie is constructed, constructed to make us choose them in every situation they're in right and so when we get to this moment here we've been choosing again we've been othering henry the whole mo- henry and karen have been othering themselves the whole movie but now that they're caught they want to other themselves again in this moment and almost come off as a couple of privileged little shits because karen is like well you know, I want to see my mom. Oh, you mean I can't see my mom? And he's like, right. yeah, I guess we can work something out. But no, you, you're not going to be able to see your mom. Oh, I can't do that. I, I've got to be able to see my mom. And Henry's like, oh, are you foolish? They're going to kill. And even McDonald says, well, they can't get to him, but they'll get to you. And they might need to get yeah. to him yeah. by getting to you. So just so you understand, you and your kids are in danger and what have you. Um, and then she doesn't want to do it. And Henry puts this on her, like in essence saying, if you don't do it, I can't do it. And, we're, and I'm dead, and if I'm dead, you're probably dead too. So there's all these, But she, and then she tries. She's like, well, you don't need me, right? You need him. He's the one. And he's like, yeah, I don't need you. You're irrelevant. But if it makes him a better witness, I'd like you to go with him. So she is trying all these avenues to use her privilege. And if I go a little farther, use the kind of um, uh, talking your way out of the situation that some people have. Or born from a certain level of privilege thinking they can just talk themselves at anything um, and she's getting smacked down at every avenue so this person that you were enjoying and loving from the first scene with the red dress and coming up to Henry and saying it's going to cost you and all that this is what she ends up as and so again this is him destroying the myth of the characters that he just presented to you and showing you what this life actually leads you to when it's all over so It's a very important scene. And I love that he brought in the actual guy. Nothing says like Scorsese is choosing a side against these people than bringing in the actual guy who put these people away. So I thought that was great. There's such great authenticity in this scene between
2: the three of them. But by the way, first of all, Ed McDonald, one of the two commentary tracks on the Goodfellas Blu-ray is Henry Hill and Ed McDonald. Shut up. Really? Yeah, it's I, not I that good a commentary. That. It's it's not a great comment. And actually, oh, Ed McDonald no. is is more interesting, I would say, than Henry Hill is through most of it. What, but, but the funniest thing is that that I would say just from listening to them because they they're linked together. I yeah. think they wrote a book together or something like that. And just the feeling I got listening to them is Ed McDonald doesn't like Henry Hill. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. just that he's linked to him. He's tied to him. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. J- just back to what what you were saying. I think the part of the what allows these people to do these things is yeah. you know there's a famous psychological book from Ernst Becker called the denial of death and the idea is that most of us walk around not really believing that we're going to die and that allows us to smoke cigarettes and do all these stupid things or live our lives in ways that don't make sense because yeah. we're just Blocking out the fact that terrible consequences can happen. Well, that's what's gone on with Karen and Henry and all of these people. It's just the denial of the world that they live in and how fucking dangerous it actually is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We have another question from Patreon. This one is from Adam, uh, real last name unknown. It says, save this question for the end. Did Henry really love Karen in the end? I don't think there is an obvious answer displayed in the film, but it seems he uses her. He asked her to do so much in the film, but did he actually love her when he has the mistresses? What do you think? I think
3: you. I think you can't look at love in a binary way with certain people, and by that I mean, you don't love someone if you cheat on them. That's not hundred percent true in every situation, right? I, I think we. I think we seek absolutes too much in life, and as you get older, you realize how much of a fallacy certain absolutes are. Um, their relationship was very complex. I don't. And, and again, you buy into this idea that Karen is this like unwitting person who is influenced. Bullshit. She was an adult and she willingly went along. This idea of letting people off from decisions they made because they were, quote unquote, influenced or whatever. Come on now. We're all adults. Um, she made her choices. She says in the film, I found it sexy that he that he physically assaulted a human being to protect my honor at his home, in his driveway, with a weapon, okay? So this idea that Karen's this sweet, you know, don't buy, as McDonald said, this babe in the woods routine. So both of them had a complex relationship, and I'd be curious to hear what this person has to say, now that you know this truth about the characters, or about the real-life people, that Karen was having an affair with Paulie on Henry, and may have had affairs with other people on Henry as well. So they had a very complex relationship where probably both of them were cheating numerous times throughout the relationship, but that doesn't mean that they didn't love each other. Okay. And again, it's not that I'm advocating cheating or saying that you should, I'm saying certain relation, every relationship is different. And some relationships you have both cup, both people cheating, but they still love each other. And I think Karen and Henry loved each other again, for 25 years, right? got divorced in what, 1990-something, but the divorce wasn't finalized till like 2002. So it took a while before it was actually official. So they clearly loved each other in some very strong way. And I think the movie does show that throughout the film. Even that final scene that we just talked about, Steve, with them crumpled on the floor crying, he's initially mad at her, but she crawls to him. He puts his hand, but then he hugs her because he does love her. Um, it's just that it was a wild relationship in a wild situation. So there were so many crazy swings in it. So to me, yes, I think the movie does show that they do love each other. It's just, you know, it's, um, he was not faithful to her, which was part of the life for a lot of these guys. If you read any books on these guys, they all cheated, you know, and still love their wives. Like they all have religious uh, dedication and religious figures in the house. Like even Tommy says to his mom as he's walking out, stop painting religious pictures, will you? They have that – they have a dedication to God even though they do all these things that they're doing. So there's a lot of – just a lot of uh, um, conflicting philosophies in in these people who do this stuff.
2: So uh, I want to go back to where you started, which is the idea that love is not binary. (laughs) Can you go back that far? I mean I I went too long on that one. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) I <laughs> think you said lovely things. To me, like, love is this really big word mm. that we pretend like we know what it means or that it means the same yeah. thing. Yeah. You know, loving your kid and loving your dog and loving your wife and loving your parents and loving your friends and loving your, and you could have, you know, the, sex can be involved, sex cannot be involved. There's all this, this is this huge word. And so, like, and, and we talk about it like it always means the same. Like, you have now fallen in love. You have love for this person. And this is as if we know what the fuck that means or what relationships are like within them. I think not the reality of the real Henry Hill and Karen, but of the characters that are in this film. I believe that Henry Hill loves Karen more than he loves any other woman in the film. I don't particularly think he really loves Janice or Sandy or anybody else that he might meet. Right. I think they have, I think they have a connection. And I think based on what Karen says, despite everything that happens, he, she continues to be sexually attracted to this person. Yeah. I also think they hate each other. Yes, know? right,
0: right. That's also an element.
2: yeah. Karen, you know, has all sorts of reasons to hate him, and he has all sorts of reasons to hate her. And I also, and they, I also think they are mutually dependent upon each other. Yeah, that they hate. when they're, they're huddled good. in the corner, it's not just like look at the love. It's they don't have anybody else. Right. They are to they are together on a, on the island. You know. And like, and so, and so I just go like, well, what the, you know, what is, what is love in these contexts? Um, one other thing we should say is as the cop is breaking Karen down to finally get her to agree, agree to go into the witness protection program, we are seeing Jimmy marched out with handcuffs. Mm-hmm. We're seeing Polly par- let out in handcuffs. And what I like about this is it's happening during the scene before they have officially made the decision. And what it's doing is it's saying the decision's already made. Like, we're, we're seeing them come to it, but it is inevitable at this point that they have to do this. Mm. Uh, and now we're at the trial, uh, and Henry's on the stand. And I, I like this bit of description. He says, My house was in my mother-in-law's name. My cars were registered
1: to my wife. My social security cards and driver's licenses were phonies. I never voted. I never paid taxes. My birth certificate and my arrest sheet. That's
2: all you'd ever have to know I was alive. It's a life that's a total lie. Yeah. Complete fabrication. You're hiding all the time. All yep. the time. And the lawyer asks him to point to Jimmy, and he does. Ask him to point to Paul Cicero and he does. Mark See, the, the hardest thing for me was leaving the life. I
1: still love the life. And we were treated like movie stars with muscle. We had it all just for the
2: asking. Just just stop there for a moment. Of yeah. the we romanticized the life at the beginning. Mm-hmm. We hear at the beginning, all my life I wanted to be a gangster. We see him dream of that, and now at the end, he's it's still he still wants to be a gangster. Yeah, it's still it's all he knows. And yep. he said at the beginning, uh, all his life he ever wanted to be, all he ever wanted to be was a gangster. So yeah. And then what's so amazing at this moment is then he turns and talks directly to camera, which is actually something Jordan Belfort does, C- DiCaprio does in Wolf of Wall Street.
3: Didn't
1: matter didn't mean anything. When I was broke, I would go out and rob some more. We ran everything. We paid off cops. We paid off lawyers. We paid off judges. Everybody had their hands out. Everything was for the taking. And now it's all over.
3: Do you like this decision as a director? Do you like this decision of have him? Because he's been narrating the whole movie. But now we have him step off the witness stand with everybody, essentially breaking the fourth wall with everybody standing still, or sitting still on the set and him walking right to the camera
2: and saying all of this as we're about to cut to, you know, his witness protection place. Not not only do I like it, this isn't by my, the way, my favorite example of this. There are others. I think actually I like the ones in Wolf of Wall Street better than mm. this, but, but I, not only do I like this technique, I've used this technique. This happens mm. in the assistance, which is mm-hmm. a, a VO movie. And there's a moment where you're hearing the VO and then Chris is talking directly to camera. Right. Right. You know, Um, I totally like this technique. Do you like it? I like it here. Absolutely. I
3: don't think the technique always works with certain films, but I liked it here uh, because we've gotten so familiar with him. And again, to go back to John's question, this is him breaking the fourth wall so that you understand this is Ray Liotta as Henry Hill. Mm -hmm. This is not Henry Hill necessarily. This is Ray Liotta talking to you about it as Henry Hill, through the camera so he's broken the fourth wall in that this is no longer just the henry hill character this is now ray liotta and the henry hill character talking to you so you understand this this is all fake what yep. they've yep. done this is a movie not reality a movie and i think that's scorsese's point by having him walk through everybody standing still on a set is that he's trying to show you that this is all a movie about what actually happened but what happened uh, was worse You know.
2: And it's so it's like an it's like an echo of the opening in terms of the romanticizing Ooh. of the gangster life, you know. Yes. yes. Yeah. But it's 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 sort of a pitiful echo because now we know we're like, well, this was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, everyone's dead, and, you, and yeah. it didn't go anywhere, and you end up with nothing. Like this was all. Yeah. But he, but Henry Hill himself is still never going to be past this, you know. And we see some housing development, and it's just ordinary american life and we hear and that's the hardest part today everything is different there's
1: no action i have to wait around like everyone else can't even get decent food right after i got here i ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and i got egg noodles and ketchup
2: and we've been quoting this line from the beginning of the movie it is a very memorable line it might very well be that this is not a henry hill line Mm. It might not even be a Nick Pelleggi or Martin Scorsese line. Do you know who might have come up with this line? Ray Liotta. No. Oh. Nick Pelleggi's wife, who we have not spoken about at all. Do you know who his wife was at this time? Who is she? Uh, A little screenwriter director named Nora Ephron. Oh, wow. And Nora Ephron, in the whole time he was writing wise guys. They were going and they were having dinner with mobsters and she got to know mobsters and she ended up writing a couple of movies that dealt with mobsters, including My Blue Heaven, which is about the character of Henry Hill that came out one month before Goodfellas. So there are two Henry Hill movies, one by Nick Pelleggi and Martin Scorsese, which is Goodfellas, (laughs) and the other, a comedy also about Henry Hill written by Nick Pelleggi's wife, Nora Ephron. I would love to know what Martin's reaction was to that. I would love. If he was on board with it, you know. <laughs> and if he and 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 so and just so you know, our plan because of this connection <laughs> is once a month on Patreon we do watch-alongs, which is basically John and I watching a movie, doing kind of a commentary track. And we decided, look, it's My Blue Heaven. Essentially, is Goodfellas too, so yep. we're going to do My Blue Heaven, which I think I saw. I'm not a hundred percent sure that I saw it. I yeah. think I saw it do you remember I, if you saw it i've never seen it and i've I, but i know it's rick
3: moranis and steve martin and i think yeah. joan cusack so i've always heard people who liked the movie or had friends who liked the movie but yeah. i've it's never really appealed to me and i didn't know it was about henry hill until just the last few years so yeah uh, i'm looking forward to watching it for the first time on
2: uh a watch along of the cinephiles so yeah yeah next time. so Patreon.com slash The Cinefiles. You've already heard some questions from our patrons. Yeah. Now, if you want to hear our reactions, our really very fresh reactions to My Blue Heaven, it, you could check it out and become a supporter. We see him walk out in a robe and pick up a paper, and I went. It's the Sopranos. It's Tony Soprano mm. going out and pick up his paper in the robe. That's a key thing that we see all the time, right. and we hear.
1: I'm an average nobody. get to live the rest of my life like a
2: schnook and then we cut to this shot in slow motion of Tommy yeah looking straight at camera and firing his gun right at him and it's so much and i know cuz of course as he said it but this is the great train robbery this is mm-hmm. the one of the most important moments in silent film where a cowboy shoots right at the audience it was shocking at the times like 1912 yeah. um and and it's such an interesting choice so before we go on Mm -hmm. Why do you think Scorsese chooses to have this shot right now? I think there are numerous meanings to this, and it depends on what your perception of
3: this shot is. To me, this is Tommy getting the revenge from the grave on Henry that he couldn't get in real life, because he would have killed Henry if he had tried to turn evidence. Um, So to me, this is showing you, like, this is um, the death of his life as a gangster. And so in essence, Tommy is killing the death of his life as a gangster in this moment. So, and it's also just to reaffirm, like, this is, this is the, this is where you end up and you can, and it's a shitty, dangerous, crazy life. These are the people you have to deal with in this life. And this is where you might end up eating egg noodles and pasta when it's all over and turning on these people
2: who you thought were your family. The the great thing about this kind of moment is, of course, there is no answer. There's just, yeah, right. This it's is just entirely open, to, and, and it's funny because my interpretation, yours is that it's the death of the gangster, mm. and my interpretation is is basically the exact opposite, which is mm. that it's just as I said. That was how Tommy sees himself when we have that slow mo shot of him killing Stacks. Yeah, yeah. Is that? this is the gangster that will always live in his mind. Mm. This is the gangster he's never going to escape, the image of who, who he wants to be and the life he can't have, you know? Um, and of course, there is no correct interpretation. That's what makes it an amazing moment in the film. And we hear, which is, again, it's redundant, but another fantastic mu- music choice, Sid Vicious's version of My Way. <laughs> I mean, I, how did you, I don't know how you came up with that, but that is amazing. <laughs> And then we get our text on the screen where we hear that Henry is still in the witness protection program. He, in 1987, he was arrested in Seattle, Washington for narcotics conspiracy and received five years probation uh, and that he's been clean since 87. Well, he didn't. He wasn't clean. He was never clean. That's just not really true. Right. Henry uh, and Karen separated after 25 years of marriage. Paul Cicero died in prison. Jimmy Con, It says Jimmy Conway is serving 20 years to life and he won't be eligible for parole until 2004. Well, he died of cancer in prison in 96. Um, yeah. Him and Jimmy died of cancer. Uh, Paulie and Jimmy
3: died of cancer in, in prison. Well, they did not leave healthy lifestyles. I mean, just, you know, <laughs> and then Henry died of heart disease. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> and Tommy was shot in the back of the head.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, basically, it seems like a tough life. By the way, something I didn't know is the yep. cinematographer Michael Ballhouse had to leave the film two weeks with two weeks left in production. Oh, shit. What? And they brought in a, a little cinematographer named Barry Sonnenfeld. Oh wow! Take over. No idea of that. Um, and I don't know what he shot. I don't know what things were Sonnenfeld and what were Ballhouse at all. Um, apparently, in post, Scorsese is just very critical and emotional about his work. And that. Oh, and what? so, which you know, and I get. It. I mean, I've said it many times. Is like post is torture because you see every fucking thing you did wrong. Mm-hmm. And it re- and the movie really, really doesn't work uh, until it works. But it sounds like Thelma is was calm and was that sort of steadying force to let him get his emotional things out and also keep him on track. And what she says is she talks about how much patience and discipline and courage editing takes and that she thinks courage is one of Marty's most important traits. Mm-hmm. So now we go to screenings. Audiences hated this in screenings. And here's part of why. And and they still do this, which is they'll go, hey, do you want to come see a a free screening? Or they will have played one movie and say, listen, audience, if you want to stay, we'll show you a screening of a special movie. They didn't say, hey, we have an extremely violent movie about the mafia from Martin Scorsese. And so someone might have seen, you know, some 90s romantic comedy and then they say, dude, now we're going to show you this movie. And so, of course, people are angry, you know? Yeah. There was one time where they are showing it and they had a problem with the projector and the audience is, like, tearing the seats out. They're so angry. Paul Sorvino goes to see the movie and thought it was absolutely terrible. He thought it was a disaster. It was too violent. And he's sitting with his kids, including, I assume, Mira Sorvino. Yeah,
4: probably.
2: And he, they go out and he says, the movie's terrible. I hated myself. I'm awful. And his daughter says this is the greatest thing you've ever done. This is a great film. Wow. And what he said was, it was like three or four hours later that he just had a moment and and it, and it flipped in his brain and he realized it was one of the best movies he ever seen. Mm. Um, well, That can be the reaction sometimes to yeah. groundbreaking movies, Steve, right? Like they're like,
3: holy shit. They're like you think it's terrible, but then when you sit down with what the director was actually trying to do, your mind completely changes, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have to reckon with Scorsese movies. You, 100%. I hated Raging Bull for like t- 10, 20 years. I was yeah. not a fan of... I thought it was one of the most depressing films I'd ever witnessed, and I never wanted to watch it again. <laughs> well, it but is depressing. Like, <laughs> yeah, well, true, fair. But as I came into my 40s and really started to study the aesthetic of of movies, it, it, it took on a whole new life for me. And, and now it's a movie that... I don't watch all the time, but when I do watch it, I really appreciate the, um, uh, artistry that went into making the movie.
2: I, I, I think I told you I've watched the first hour. I haven't mm-hmm. finished it yet. And I, it's so funny cause it's really, it's so the opposite of Goodfellas. I'm really looking oh, for yeah. the conversation, but mm-hmm. I don't know quite what I have so much to say about Goodfellas and Raging Bull. I go like, wow. Okay. You know what I mean? Like I have to really think about what we have Don't to say. Don't you worry about it.
3: it. We're going to have a lot to say about that. <laughs> okay. Don't you worry about it.
2: <laughs> uh, it had a, a something like a $25 million budget. It made like $46 million at the box office, which is a success. It's not a huge success, but it's a success. Uh, it was named Best Picture of the Year by a lot of critics, including both Siskel and Ebert named it their Best Picture of the Year. Uh, it was nominated for Best Picture but lost to Dances with Wolves. Nonsense. Not nominated good. for best director, lost to Kevin Costner. she won for best supporting actor. Yeah. No, how could he not? Yeah. Uh Lorraine Bracco lost supporting actress to Whoopi Goldberg for Ghost, which is uh, I I I I don't think I've seen Ghost in 30 years. Yeah. I guess it's it's fi- is that it's fine and I know that Whoopi is good in it, you know. I just remember at the time I never understood the nomination because yeah. she's good in the
3: movie but this ain't Sealy from The Color Purple. And so yeah, I never understood the nomination. And then when she won, I was even more shocked that she won. But, you know, look, I was happy that a black actress won in a yeah. in what is usually predominantly a white-awarded field. I was happy that she won. So do I think Lorraine Brock delivered deliver the better performance? Yes, 100% I do. It's in a better movie, although yeah. I like Ghost. It's in a better movie. But, you know, I'm not going to begrudge Whoopi winning – the Oscar because I bet there were a lot of performances from people of color in for decades that were never even recognized by the Academy to be nominated, what have you. So you know,
2: yeah, I I, I think Whoopi is totally good, you know, yeah. but it is. Sure. Um, and then uh, adapted screenplay nomination lost to Dances with Wolves, and then in my mind, in the biggest crime by far, editing loses to Dances with Wolves, and I just like. How The editing in this movie is world-class. It's its own completely different thing. It's also, I think, important to point out, it is exactly one decade after Raging Bull lost to Ordinary People. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. And both Ordinary People and Dances with Wolves are films directed by movie stars, you know, Robert Redford and Kevin Costner. And I think Ordinary People is a really good movie. I think it probably holds up better than Dances with Wolves but it ain't oh. Raging Bull and Dances Wolves is not Goodfellas, you know?
3: Yeah, you know, and it's tough, right? Because is Dances Wolves recognized because it was us coming to terms as a society with Native American, the treatment of Native Americans at the time, which uh, we were starting to have more of a part of our pop culture in the conversation. So is that why the Academy and people voted for it? Or was it legitimately the better film? Did people Were people turned off by the violence? Because people forget, like, Goodfellas is one year after Do the Right Thing, 89 mm. to 90. And so we as a society, we're not as comfortable with violence in our movies as we are now, right? This this Goodfellas was really shocking for a lot of people to witness in the movie theater. And that's why you can't – although I think the, uh, the Oscars are a great blueprint or, or guidelines for understanding what the best films of the year are, the winners are not always the best films of the year. So you've got to always be open when you're revisiting some of these films to understand the context of when these films come, came out and why some of these films lost to films that look completely pedestrian in comparison uh,
2: to the films that uh, that lost. You know, you know what I would say, and I, I'm, I'm kind of just we just said that Scorsese you have to reckon with his films. And you said that it took you 10 to 20 years to sort of evolve your feelings about Raging Bull.
3: Yes, yes.
2: We also said that people who went to the screening of Goodfellas, a lot of them really didn't like it. When I saw Dances with Wolves in the theater, I was blown away. I thought it was totally amazing. And I've watched it since. And I I still think the opening is totally amazing. And I think the rest of the movie... It's good. There are all sorts of reasons why it doesn't hold up as well as it once did, and so it's funny. Now I'm kind of going: Are *Raging Bull* and *Goodfellas* the more important, more serious, more beloved, more um, movies that will stand the test of time? Absolutely. Yeah. But now I'm kind of going: I get it. You know, in the it it takes a while to reckon with these films, so it's hard for them. You know, that's why I say you know people go
3: back, go, oh, the Academy. What do they? know? No, it's it's a matter of understanding context, especially if you're some. 25 year old uh, pundit, or you think you're a pundit about movies, you, if you have no context of when these things were coming, even no idea of why, what was going on in our society, you can't really accurately explain why a certain film won over another film. You can't. No matter how much you think you can, you can't. You know, so uh, context is always important. And what was going on in society at the time is always important because that always bled over into films. That being said, it still was nominated for a number of yeah. awards, which means Enough people in the academy understood that this was an important film or a good film or a groundbreaking film to recognize it. It's just that the overall academy wasn't as comfortable validating this film uh, in comparison to something like uh, Dance with Wolves." you know And again, just because Midnight Cowboy Wins as a groundbreaking movie in 1969, an x-rated movie about you know a guy who's a, a hustler and a, 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 a male prostitute and a guy with physical ailments that he's dealing with. It doesn't mean that in 1990, the same people are involved in choosing the best picture. It's all context, different voters, different times, different mentalities in society. So, yep. all of that factors into it. I know it's a fun conversation to have, but I, I rarely try to go after the academy for these decisions. Now, when it comes to the Green Book and shit like that, certainly, but or driving this daisy, but other stuff, I
2: think I'm a little more understanding
3: on, so to speak. So,
2: So I have a little bit of information about what happened to these people after Uh, Henry Hill, then named Martin Lewis, (laughs) met a woman named Sherry Adams and got married in Virginia City. Beautiful wedding. Very lovely. The only problem was he was already married. (laughs) He hadn't divorced Karen. (laughs) So this is when he got convicted of cocaine trafficking and he got expelled from the witness protection program then it was another arrest for drunken disorderly then he was married again and then this amazing thing happened which is there were two movies made out of his life and Hmm. suddenly he made lots and lots of money Hmm. and then he uh died in 2012 that is all the information that i have on henry
0: hill
3: yeah he had 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 a uh, girlfriend in the final six seven years of his life um and um had a number of uh, ailments that were visited upon him as he was getting older because of his smoking, which we saw in the film being highlighted throughout the whole movie. Uh, You know, ends up dying. He'd had a heart attack, uh, I think a year before then starts to erode uh, health wise because of his heart. And then eventually passes from a heart disease. But he, you know, he'd been on, like he got on Donahue. He was on all these shows once the film came out and did all this press. But then, people turned on him, you know, and people had other opinions about what he was doing. And then it started to get revealed how, how, how he actually was an incompetent buffoon at times in the mafia and a lot of people, or the mob rather, and a lot of people who actually were in the mob at the same time as him, who had gotten out and wrote books and their experiences validated that opinion about Henry Hill as well. So it kind of took the shine off of this, these moments, these uh, 15 minutes of fame that he got. Um, because he got exposed for how little he actually was involved in some of the stuff. So when you watch the movie now, you can actually look at, through a different prism in that Henry doesn't really do a lot of criminal stuff in the movie besides the drug stuff. He, he, you don't see him killing people. You don't see him beating people up all the time. You don't see him, you know, what he does is white-collar crime. The the robbing Lufthansa or the Air France, those are more white-collar crimes. And so um, in that way, they kind of... Scorsese was telling you this guy wasn't necessarily uh, as ruthless or as part of the stuff as you might think, and so later having that validation from actual people who were in the mob around that time um, kind of put a little bit of a or took some of the lust uh, shine off of him um, overall. So yeah,
2: I'm trying to put my final thoughts into some sort of order. Sure, and I'm gonna I'm gonna do, I'm gonna take my best shot, which is because. I have an odd relationship to Scorsese, and I have an odd relationship, I think, to this film. And it's the same things I was struggling struggling with when we talked about Wolf of Wall Street. Okay. is and, and what I realized part of it is, is the most foundational, fundamental stuff in my childhood in terms of how I think of stories and what my favorite stories are yeah. comes from Star Trek and comic books. Oh, yeah. yeah sure. And so I've always loved, I'm always drawn to smart people who want to do the right thing and are struggling to do that. That's what that's those are my kinds of stories, right? That's why I love uh grew up on MASH and you can have Kirk and Spock and McCoy have an argument and have strong disagreements about what the right thing is to do. You can have Batman and Superman actually fight each other because they disagree so strongly about what the right thing to do is, but they're smart talented people who are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And so when I go to things, which is why watching the Sopranos wasn't fun for me because mm. I go like these are obviously people who are not trying to do like Michael Corleone is smart and talented and disciplined and he is on some level, particularly in the first Godfather film trying to do the right thing for his family. And so I can get behind that. And then in the second film, he's still a fucking genius and he's still disciplined and all those things. I can get behind that watching these films, watching Goodfellas, What I actually think I'm relating more to Mm -hmm. is the, the art of filmmaking is the, Mm. is it's it's actually it's not my relationship to Henry Hill it's my relationship to Martin Scorsese and Thelma Schoonmaker yeah. and Nick Pelleggi it's how it's all put together and the thrillingness of it and how it's the film is manipulating my emotions mm. you know it's not you know it's like it's not that I ever go like I want to hang out with Henry Hill and Tommy and Jimmy Conway like that doesn't seem like a fun thing but I am propelled by just the genius of the way the movie's put together, by the music, by the cinematography, how we're just thrown into this world, the way the voiceover is used. the, the mm. and, it, and it goes back to, it's funny, something that you reacted strongly against at the very beginning, I'm going to kind of say is what's working for me, which is that Martin Scorsese's statement that Henry Hill is not the main character of the film, but mm. the world is the main character of the film. Mm. And I go like you know what? I think that's what I'm responding to is the film itself and the world and how I'm propelled through it, not by the actual characters in the movie, although they're all beautifully acted and all that stuff. And so like, I think, and it's so funny because will I ever be drawn to Goodfellas the way I'm drawn to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan or Rocky or Jaws or, you know, any of these other films? No, I'm never going to be drawn to this movie for that, but it's good for me to watch this movie. You know what I mean? To experience all these things that are so different from the way that I look at the world, because that's part of what's good about movies is it's not just that they're reflecting back to you what you want to see, but they're taking you to places and maybe reflecting back to you parts of yourself that you don't want to see. Yeah, maybe that's the big thing, because even though I don't like these characters. I get all my life I wanted to be a gangster Mm -hmm. and I see that world and I want to go into the Copacabana too. And I don't like that part of myself that feels that way. But if I don't watch this movie, then I don't get to, then I'm not being honest with myself about who I am and who humans are. Like that's what I, that's the kind of the gift to me about Martin Scorsese is he's not just going, look at this world. He's going, look at yourself. Yep. Yeah. This has been the
3: hallmark of a lot of his great films, which I think people, haven't fully embraced or accepted or understood when watching these movies is that Scorsese is turning the camera back on you by the end of every one of his films. And so again, we go back to John's question. That's what, that's why you may think John. And I used to think this too, uh, you know, back in my thirties, like um, which was only five years ago uh, (laughs) that uh, the idea of, you know, this idea that, Oh God, I hate these endings because they always kind of, you know, uh, it seems like it's kind of terrible and all these people, and it's not as cool as the first hour and a half or two hours. But that's the point, because he wants to make you confront these things, because he's making a commentary on society that society glorifies the wrong people in our world, and unfortunately, you don't see true teacher stories, you see true crime stories. That's what yeah. people are obsessed with. There's no section in the in the um, in the uh, uh, Barnes and Noble that says true teacher stories. It's true crime, and so people are obsessed with this stuff because there's titillation involved in the stuff, and we, at the end of the day, no matter how good we think we are. We are titillated by crime. We are titillated by the people in our society who break laws because we are naturally rebellious as human beings, hence outlaws. That's the thing. We're all, it's a universal energy that a lot of people possess in our world is this idea to want to break through the rules. Now, some people love the rules, don't get me wrong, but most people enjoy kind of playing or flouting with rules, and we get that played out in movies like this and get to enjoy characters like this as they kind of flout the rules a little bit. Plus they're cool. They're good looking. They're in shape. They're really talented. And so you're watching all of that as you're watching the movie. And then by the end, you really see where they, in a Scorsese film, you see where they end up. And certainly this is a film that shows you that as well. Yeah. I love this movie for the performances, for the writing, for the way Scorsese shoots this movie, for the editing, as you mentioned, Steve, so well to bring up here. Uh, The music choices, the needle drops are so well, but the way he immerses you in this world so that you understand that danger is always around the corner, even though you are enjoying the journey of these guys as they go through the, and I don't mean you're validating or proving, but I mean, you're enjoying the journey. You're enjoying it. Yeah. You're enjoying these guys and what they're connecting to and what they're creating together so that when all the stuff starts to fall apart, you actually feel that as you're watching the ends of the of the film because you care about these characters no matter what terrible stuff they've done. So I think it's a marvelous film that I have constantly reevaluated as, as I've gotten older and it's gotten even better for me as I've gotten older uh as I understand more and more of what Scorsese was trying to do with this film. So I'm glad this film exists. I'm glad it stands the test of time and and I think this is one that people will go back to and watch years after Steve and I have shuffled off this mortal coil. So yeah.
2: I can't help uh, commenting on the fact that as I'm listening to you talk about this world and how we're titillated by the world and we like watching these people that are going to do dangerous things, I was like, I'm being told all this by the outlaw. <laughs> well, who would know better? That? I mean, well, that, but, but actually, like, <laughs> honestly, we wouldn't be here if people didn't love the heel. Yeah,
3: know? 100%. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's my natural... Uh, you know, personality Uh, and um, getting an arena like the Schmodown to show that and create that character and have that come through and have people really connect to that character because I also became an underdog character, even though I delivered some of the most brutal takedowns of some of the players, people saw the honesty behind all that and that I really wanted to win and that I wasn't a person who was part of the movie space So in a way, I had my foot firmly in the fandom side and in the movie critic side. And so in a way, people cheered for that and um, saw themselves a little bit in The Outlaw, but also uh, enjoyed seeing John Rocha underneath the hat as well. So yeah, and yeah, we started this right at the height of uh, The Outlaw and The Schmodown. So yeah, in some strange way, (laughs) the rebellious nature of ourselves and the titillation of it all kind of is a, a, a genesis for this show.
2: And I know we've reached in the show and I'm just going to say one more thing is that like, yeah. you know, my love of things like Star Trek, when Star Trek is really bad is when there's no outlaw, when there's just like, everything is good. we all yeah. we figured out right. humanity. It's like right. where Star Trek works is it still has to have some of that darkness yeah. and how much, you know, there's the slider on the darkness and in Goodfellas, we get the slider really far to the dark. Yeah. But like, that's, part that's part of our humanity. If you take away the darkness, you take away our humanity It doesn't exist anymore. Exactly. So that's what we think of Goodfellas. We hope you've enjoyed going on this journey with us. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the questions asked by our patrons, some of the questions that we brought up, some of the ambiguities in the story, how you feel about it at the end. You can visit us on our Facebook page. Just do a search for The Cinephiles. It's Cine underscore files on Twitter, The Cinephiles Podcast on Instagram. If you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts, we would really appreciate them. We'd love to hear your comments there. You can subscribe to the show, of course, on Apple podcast or on all the other major places, including Spotify and YouTube, where we always try to read your comments and interact with you there. If you want to support the show, as we've mentioned many times now, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. And if you want to buy or stream Goodfellas along with every other movie we've ever reviewed, you can do it on cinephiles.net. And if you want to reach me, it's SR Morris on Twitter, SR Morris one on Instagram. John, how can they reach you? Uh, you can always reach me at the Roka Says on Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, the Outlaw Nation
3: on twitch uh my youtube channel please head on over there youtube.com slash john roca says that's where the geek buddies and the hot mic and my uh trailer reactions and the jedi way and reviews all of that are on there the nation uh which steve occasionally comes on to talk about things that are going on in the world please head on over there and subscribe there i'm really trying to get to fifty thousand subscribers but we
2: also have our youtube channel so don't forget to subscribe to the cinephiles youtube channel as well and i think that's it for this week and we are going to continue our exploration of the work of Martin Scorsese with a special live show where we are going to dig into a movie that John hasn't seen in a long time and I just rewatched that I really liked. And by the way, it violates everything we said about Martin Scorsese because this is a movie that doesn't have a sad ending, it has much more of a Hollywood ending, and that is. Paul Newman and Tom Cruise in The Color of Money. So check that out uh, next week on our YouTube channel. And that is it for this week. And we will see you soon on another episode of The Simphiles.